Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio episode number 204. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are joined by a very special guest today, one of our best friends. Andy is here to discuss D2. Andy, how are you today? I am so excited to talk about D2 and my ducks. When we first started Monoreal Radio, you were one of the first people to hear it. I think actually we had sent you the file before we had released it to anybody else. Um, and as soon as you heard the show for the first time, you said, when we do Mighty Ducks, I want to come on. And I remember, like, immediately as a kid, I remember playing, like, Wayne Gretzky's 3D hockey at your house. You always yeah. wanted to play as the Mighty Ducks because they had cheese stuff. They, they, ha I mean, what are you going to do? Like, th like, this movie inspired, it, it's, you know, totally Disney's fault. They know what they're doing. Um, absolutely, like, this is the reason... I would only play as the Mighty Ducks in Wayne Gretzky's 3D Hockey or uh, NHL hits. Any NHL video game, Mighty Ducks had to be my team, and it's because of this movie. It is, and it's. I'm glad that you bring that up now because when we discuss the plot later, it's. I mean, we're going to talk in depth about how this is basically just a big a big product placement. It's a big advertisement for Disney and for the team that they were bringing to Anaheim. But so we talked just now about what it was like for us growing up with the movie. And I want to hear from you because I know that you saw this before you saw the original. And this was far more the staple in your house than the original was. Correct. And what I love about this one is that you could jump in at this level, not having seen the first one and still appreciate the team and the characters. They did a really good job of separating the two so that you didn't need backstory from the first one. Uh, but this was so my movie. I remember um, my family was staying with uh, family friends uh, out east on Long Island at their summer house. And um, their kids put this movie on. And I was just hooked immediately. I absolutely loved it. And by the time they were singing We Are the Champions at the end, I had just completely fallen in love. And it's what really made me want to get into hockey. But like my dad was never into it. And I had no one to watch with until I met you. But this totally made me want to like lace up and put on skates and, and like even play. I just loved this movie so much. I was the same way. Actually, this was the first movie that I had seen in the series too. I am pretty sure that I didn't see the first one until after. And like you say, it's, it's fine. Like it, you know, wh where it starts and where it goes, you don't really need the backstory, although it maybe helps a bit and kind of like talk about the character development from the first one, but like this was absolutely the first one I saw and just how they, I mean, in terms of how they bring the Mighty Ducks team that Disney created, it's just, I don't know any other movie or property that's done that like that. Uh, it's kind of brilliant. I don't know, maybe it's like similar to Home Alone 2, how they invented the talk boy to create the product, but as far as like a sports team goes. That is such a great comparison. That's really, yeah, that's really smart. Um, 
you mentioned character development from the first one, and that was something that I wanted to ask you about. As someone who has practiced law, what do you think <laughs> of Gordon Bombay's portrayal in the first one going from this, you know, I wouldn't say a hard-nosed lawyer, but he was very career obsessed and his you know because that was something that we talked about a lot last week is that this is really his story of redemption more than it is about a hockey team and that's something I sort of want to keep in mind to see if they carry it through the second one as well oh the, I mean the first one I mean when I had seen the first one years ago you know I, I didn't know anything about law but like I a few weeks ago I saw the first one again knowing that we'd be talking about d2 and I wanted the backstory here and I was just like shaking my head at all like the legal stuff in terms of like in the story he's at least in D2 they mentioned like he's 28 or 29 now and he's so in the first one he's younger and so you're not out of law school until you're 25 so in the next two or three years he's this hotshot lawyer who's trying his own cases not likely like usually it's a few years before you're ever even in front of a judge where you are the chair, the lawyer. Um, but anyway, like legal stuff aside, like it's all just kind of ridiculous. And then he's like, all right, well now I'm going to drop practicing law so I could coach peewee hockey as a part-time gig. I don't know. I wonder if that's sort of a hole that they dug for themselves in the second one, because talking about 28, 29, like that's older for an NHL career and he's only just getting started in the minors. So I'm wondering if they didn't necessarily, because I, I, I don't recall them giving the age in the first one, but if they, they did but in, they the say second, it in the second, it do, yeah, it yeah. does kind of unravel his, his law career. All right. Well, we're going to discuss all of that in just a few minutes. Did they continue to bend the rules of hockey for the sake of making a film? Is this one giant commercial? Did we need a second film? That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms, ornaments, and personalized photo nightlights. So make sure to check them out because they have got a ton of really good Halloween and Christmas uh, ornaments and uh, for your pictures too they would make great gifts for the season so definitely start thinking about shopping this year yes. uh, listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code Monoreal10 at checkout visit Hidden Mickey Supply Co. on Instagram and Etsy to stay up to date on all of the new releases Gordon Bombay is in the minors but suffers a devastating knee injury ending his career after working at Jan's Hockey Shop he is approached by Don Tibbles of Hendricks Hockey to coach Team USA at the Junior Goodwill Games. Of course, they will be sponsored by Hendricks Hockey. And don't worry, they remind you plenty of times. He puts the Ducks back together and adds five new players from around the country that can help them take the gold from their rival Iceland. He deals with the team bickering while also balancing the game with also being a sponsor and a media darling. They arrive in Los Angeles and immediately find success, which only heightens the drama with Iceland and their coach, Wolf the Dentist Stanson, who has been thrown out of the National Hockey League. Things are only made worse when Gordon starts to 
on again, off again, date the trainer from the Iceland team and starts to grow an ego at the advice of Tibbles. In a preliminary game, Iceland blows Team USA away while injuring Adam Banks and causing a rift within Team USA, Gordon, and Hendricks hockey as a whole. When Team USA is challenged to a roller hockey game by Russ Tyler, the team accepts and starts to play less like Team USA and more like the Ducks. Jans, meanwhile, visits Gordon and helps bring the rebirth of the Minnesota Miracle Man, but not before the team's tutor, Miss McKay, fills in as their coach and leads Team USA to victory because Gordon is distracted. The team prepares for Iceland, who they meet in the championship game, with new player Russ Tyler in tow while Charlie takes a spot on the bench coaching with Gordon. Down 4-1 going into the third period, Team USA takes the ice as a rebranded Ducks team and slowly gets back into the game. The game remains tied after the third period, and instead of going into overtime, we go right to a shootout where Julie the Cat Gaffney is put in the game in favor of Goldberg, where she beats Gunnar Stahl, bringing the gold to Team USA which later leads to, as you discussed before, we're all going to sit around the campfire and sing We Are the Champions. Emilio, the mighty duck man, I swear to God, this guy can skate. I've said it in the first one, but it's even better in this opening scene. I mean, I, I know that when Wayne Gretzky went to L.A., the Kings became a thing. They were big and hot in Hollywood. They were trendy, and they had a lot of celebrity supporters. I think Estevez was one of them. Um, but this guy really did learn how to skate, and he did it very well. Yeah, you can tell that they definitely built off of his skill from the first one because they let him do a lot more in this scene. I didn't realize that was him. I assumed it was a double. In most of the wide shots, it is. But, I mean, of course, he's like heavily padded for it, but he actually does do the fall, and they don't cut away where, you know, you see him drop out of frame and the next thing you know, he's on the ground and, you know, there's a pad catching him when Mm -hmm. they do the shot where he's up and then you see him drop out. You actually see him hit the ground. So I was really impressed by that. Um, The funny thing to me is um, we were talking about last week how you didn't like the intro, how it starts with the flashback over the opening credits and they do it again here. But it's so funny because we're talking about, you know, this new budget and how they're pumping all of this money into the new team. And yet they recycle the footage from the first one of Gordon's flashback. They put a new filter over it and then they use new audio for his dad's dialogue. So I just thought that was real funny. Not that you're going to bother to reshoot it because you were using a kid actor. (laughs) But But I was just surprised you'd want to be so budget conscious when you're clearly throwing a lot of money behind this project. When I when I saw it, and then after having seen the first one, I'm just thinking the entire time, oh no, something bad is about to happen to Gordon Bombay, given how the first one ended. I do like that they that they set this up for us in this way, though. That you know, when we last left him, he's getting on the bus to pursue this career. I like that they let us see that we ha- that he had some success with it. And then we get to see the injury. It's not just like we start with him back in Minnesota where he's complaining about, you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda with his career. So, yeah, it's a seamless transition. In terms of picking up the second film where the first film left off, 
This one does it, it. It's one of the best of any sequels, really, if you think about it. I mean, you literally see him off on the bus at the end of the first film to go to the miners, and we pick up mm-hmm. in a game. So it is seamless. The only thing I wish we had a little bit more clarity on is the timeline and how many seasons he did in the minors. Because for his career, it seems like he only had one, but they've built him up so much as a player, I feel like we should have maybe given him two or three, especially because they also make mention of Charlie's mom remarrying. So in those terms, it seems like it's two or three years, but then there's a line later on where he asked the Ducks if they practice in the off-season, which only means it was one, and I feel like we should have had a little bit more of a passage of time. Well, there's, I mean, there's a lot there. There's, it's, so, absolutely, like, the fact that they do mention, like, in the off-season, have you been practicing? So it's, like, been at most, like, a year that he's been gone, but also what you point out about them kind of being like, oh, yeah, Charlie's mom remarried. This is a master class in just the throwaway line to keep the story going. Charlie's mom remarried and it's been a year. Like that was a major plot point from the first movie, the Emilio Estevez relationship with Charlie's mom and being the father figure to Charlie. And they just scrap it all in this movie and just because, you know, Emilio needs a new love interest, I guess. And so, oh yeah, Charlie's mom got remarried. Sure. All right, moving on. Um, what else? Okay. Um, also the, in the intro, the teams, the Minnesota waves. Yeah. So I want to talk about this because first off, nobody makes the NHL that quickly. And they do say in the play by play that Gordon Bombay had coached the, 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 uh, district five ducks the year prior. So it is only a year later. So in one year, so in one year, Charlie's mother gets remarried after she couldn't keep a man to save her life. And she and Gordon have a good thing. We don't really know why other than Gordon stopped returning phone calls. Um, We don't know why their whole thing fizzled out. But in the course of at most 12 months, he has gone from a lawyer to being a peewee coach to playing in the minors to nearly making the NHL. Nobody makes the NHL that quickly, but what always bothered me even as a kid was I can look past that. I will suspend reality. I've said this on the show before. I will suspend reality for the sake of watching a movie and being entertained within reason. What I could not shake even as a kid is that they're basically playing in a rec center. A minor league team at least <laughs> plays in a small arena, five, six, seven thousand seats. This is basically playing at like the Dix Hills Ice Rink or at a YMCA. It looks like the one where they were practicing in um, Ice Princess. Exactly. It's probably the same set. If you go, if you go and look at the shooting locations, I bet you it's the same thing. No, in fact, I think the one in Ice Princess was even larger than this was. So I'm just saying, like, it always bothered me that they were playing in such a small arena. The other thing is that it is a, when he, when he gets injured, it is a very clean shoulder-to-shoulder hit. For, just from a hockey perspective, and again, even as like an eight-year-old kid when the movie came out, being a hockey fan and playing and watching as much as I did, he wasn't blindsided because he's, He's, he's bracing a, He's himself. bracing for it as he says, no, <laughs> because, you know, movie. But it's a shoulder-to-shoulder clean hit, 
and immediately grabs his knee. It never made sense to me. Like, have somebody go low on him and cheap shot him. Or if it's going to be a shoulder-to-shoulder because you don't want to risk injuring Emilio Estevez, which I understand, then have him blow out a shoulder. Have him blow out or tear a rotator cuff. Something that would have sidelined him for an extended period of time. No, and you certainly could have still had that same effect with the slow motion even if they did blindside him. If it was a dirty hit. And, you know, even though they are trying to launch this franchise with the Anaheim Ducks, I don't think Disney was afraid to go for it because they built up the Stanton character. Well, not for anything, but they they certainly have no problem taking hacks at Adam Banks. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this entire (laughs) franchise is built off of a DWI. So, I mean... Yeah, so you're afraid to show a dirty hit. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, he can drink a beer in a car and they don't. They have no problem with that. They don't cut away at all whatsoever, but, but we're not going to show a dirty hit in hockey. Okay, got it. And I mean, they'll also show it later where the dentist, like, swipes at his, his leg. That's fine. Like, they could have done a similar hit to that. Yes. But, no, but they had to do the, the train wreck in slow motion to really <laughs> emphasize... That he got injured. So. So we're talking about the distorted timeline here, which I I think we can all agree. Like, if it was two to three years, it would have made more sense for Gordon's career, the relationship with Charlie's mom. Maybe not necessarily upholding the bond that that these kids have. But to me, that's not the most egregious thing that they did. We need to talk about Hans and Jan. Because we have Jan picking up Gordon at the bus station. And I had made mention last week that, um, you know, Hans is such a great mentor character. And they couldn't get the actor back. But you don't want to lose that paternal figure for Gordon uh, and somebody who means a lot to the team. So I appreciate that we get it back. But watching it now and paying a lot more attention it's kind of odd that Gordon has such a history with someone that we as the audience have never met. Oh, but this is perfect because this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the master class of the throwaway line. Yes. Oh, hey, Jan, where's Hans? Oh, he's back in the old country for the summer. That strudel head. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Sounds good. Moving on. Let's keep going. And he says he went home to go visit our mama. These two, they're very elderly gentlemen, by the way. So this woman has to be at least 100 years old. It's the Hassenpfeffer keeping her young. It's the Hassenpfeffer keeping her young. That's the secret recipe. But I don't mind it as a cover-up. If you can't get the actor back, you could have just as easily, I hate to say it, recast the character. Sure. And no one really would have cared. You want to, the 90s did it on television all of the damn time. You could have just as easily done it here and picked up, and I don't think anyone would have cared that much. But the fact that you didn't want to recast it, that you gave him a brother that we never saw before, but we don't really care that we never saw him before, and now he's here in the shop, which he was not in at all in the first film, but we're okay with it. We just accept it for what well, it is. Well, maybe in the first movie, he was back visiting Mama. Could be. (laughs) But that's what I'm saying. It's like Batman and Bruce Wayne, right? They've never been in the same room, yet they both have the same history 
with Gordon, especially because Jan starts imparting all of this wisdom right away. And, you know, he tells him up front, Team USA is looking for a coach. And Gordon's like, nah. Meanwhile, he's already orchestrated the whole thing. So it is just kind of odd that we've never see him, seen him before. He's clearly, they're co-owners of the shop. They they give us that much information that Jan has been working there the whole time. So I'll buy it that he knows Gordon well, but it's just weird to see him taking all of these digs at the character, at, meaning at Gordon's character, um, and pushing him for better when we don't really know their relationship. Let me ask you a question here. This is a good time to ask this question. When comparing the two, who do you prefer? Oh. <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest to your point before about switching out the actor. The first time I saw... Uh, because having grown up on this one, the first time I saw the first Mighty Ducks, I didn't even notice. Same. And it wasn't until a lot of rewatches where I was like, oh, no, it's two different names. Um, see, I love the actor who plays Hans, and I'm more familiar with his other work. But I think I'm going to have to go Jan because this was just more my movie. He gets oh. Luis Mendoza to stop. I mean... <laughs> That counts yeah. for a lot. I, yeah, I mean, this kid who gets picked to be on Team USA, this amazing hockey player, can't stop. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, tough call. The thing is, I like the character development and the relationship better in the first movie. So I I have to go with, with who was the one in the first one? Hans. Was it Hans? Hans. Yeah, I have to go with with Hans just because of the relationship in the first movie and the character development there. I think you're right. There is a certain more of uh, Hans getting Gordon back on his feet that you don't get with Jan. Yeah, Jan is it's not like a still waters run deep with him so much as it is that he is he is a paternal figure that is like he's a lot softer than Hans, right? Like. He comes out, he's a lot more encouraging, upfront. He hands Gordon a lot of things that Hans wouldn't hand him, right? And and made Gordon figure it out for himself. Um, yeah, it's tough. We just spend so much more time with Hans developing him that I think I have to agree. I probably, I probably like, so here, it's tough. I think I like... Jan more as a person, but I like Hans more as a fully fleshed out character, mm. if that makes sense. Well, let's also not dismiss the fact that Jan gave him the quacker to round up the team again. The quacker from the old country, clearly. Yeah. Uh, there is something weird about the symbolism of a device used to lure ducks so that you can kill them. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. All right, so now we're starting to round up the ducks, and I love that. Oh, wait, one sec. Before we move on to rounding up the ducks, can we talk about the issue about child labor laws in that we have Charlie, who's <laughs> working in the shop now. Now, yes. I don't know that any, like, young teenage kid, like 13 or however old he's supposed to be, should be using a tool to sharpen skates, but also the line about, you got paid? 
So he is exploiting this child's free labor because he knows the kid doesn't want to be home and be with the new stepdad. Like, they just gloss over that abuse right there. But let's move on. No, and they totally write it off as an apprenticeship. You're absolutely right. Yeah, that used to be called an intern. You used to be able to do that. We would do it about 100 times a year. Yeah, but not with not with a, a blade. And a child. Yes. I, well, I know, just back, think that that back was... When the ch- back when the children were allowed to be in the mines, it was okay. <laughs> I think, though, it's like what you said. It's... It's more about Jan was just giving him a place to go so that he didn't have to be home with his stepfather. I also like what it does for Charlie's character that he just wants to be around this sport no matter Mm. what capacity that it's in. Yeah, there's also the fact that, like, they are clearly setting up Charlie to, like, walk in Emilio's footsteps, you know, or walking walking Coach Bombay's footsteps. He's working in the same shop. He was on the same, on, you know, the Wee team. And then he's going to be a coach in the end, just like Gordon Bombay. And as Gordon says, it is a great skill to learn. It is. All right. So now we start to round up the Ducks. And there's the line. Now, we have seen Charlie, but there's also the line that Gordon says of, my God, he's grown so much. What's amazing to me is not only has Charlie grown, but his jersey also grew with him. This is something (laughs) that, again, as a kid, and maybe I was just too smart for my own good, I hated that because I had jerseys like and this is the thing, right? When you hit like eight years old. Like the Islander jersey that my parents bought me when I was five didn't fit me anymore. And they bought Mm. me another one. But then that one didn't fit me anymore. By the time I was eight years old, I was on like my fourth jersey. (laughs) And that one was starting to like just about like I was just about to outgrow that one. So I could not understand how Charlie is wearing the same jersey that is still baggy on him all of these years later. It was the 90s. And I'm sure, Andy, you'll appreciate that because I know that you listen to Pod Meets World, which Sean dabbles in once in a while with me. But I, I think it was A, a 90s trope, and B, to the point that they've made on, on Pod Meets World a lot, they're trying to hide how much these kids are growing. And I think that that goes back to what we were talking about earlier is that they're telling us that only a year has passed. Now, I will buy that these are teenage boys and there was a growth spurt and teenage boys just grow very fast. All kids do. It is what it is. But um, I think in this case, because a couple of years had gone by between films, um, these kids are clearly older. I think this is like a case of like 15, 16 playing 12 year olds. So again, this is where a little bit more of a time jump would have helped us as far as in the world of the film. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Like, like it's clear. Like, I mean, it is even like a different feel between the first movie and the second movie. The first movie feels more like, like home alone in the sense of it's like a kid uh, as like the central character as, well, compared to the second movie when they're clearly teenagers. It just, it feels more mature because of how much older the kids look. Right. Regardless, I'm not paying attention to any of that because we get the <laughs> montage roundup and this is where I really started to love this movie. And I don't care how cheesy skating through the mall is. I love that they it, call it, it back the to the 90s. first one. It's it what was you did. 90s. No, this was absolutely a trope for 90s because of how popular rollerblading was as like this huge fad like it was such a common thing rollerblading through the mall because it was every kid wanted to do that but you know you couldn't but like 
I, I was thinking about this. I'm like, I've seen this before. And I went and like, I'm like, well, what other movies? So in 95, a good example, a movie that came out a year later, the Power Rangers movie, there's a scene where they're rollerblading through a mall. Uh, there's the Disney Channel original movie Brink from 98, also big rollerblading movie. And they, they got a rollerblade through a mall too. And then I think there was another one, another like, completely rollerblade oriented movie it was uh airborne also rollerblading all around everywhere and it was just like really capitalizing on that craze right it was like right before the skateboarding thing like right before tony hawk pro skater came out and everybody wanted to be a skater and avril levine made an entire career off of it right <laughs> prior to that it was the rollerblading but even just like the mall was a thing people think like the mall was a thing of the 80s and it very much was but that carried over into the 90s like talking about mall films rats. that came out exactly i was about to say films that came out around this time was mall rats you know kevin smith made what the critics panned, but in reality, was a masterclass in human observation. Yeah. Because everybody that hung out at the mall knew people that were in that movie. Yeah. That movie was just a perfect like amalgamation of what it was like to hang out in a mall in the 90s because everybody did it because kids I, I hate to sound like my father kids today don't understand what the mall was it wasn't just a place to shop all of the malls had movie theaters they had arcades they had little like um amusement uh rides well, and games but like to be fair, though, like this is the Mall of America that they're using in this well, yeah. movie, which is like the biggest mall in the country. And like, of course, it has the movie theater. It has but it has the indoor amusement park. A few years ago, I went to the Mall of America when I was in Minneapolis and the place is just huge. Like, I mean, they also like filmed wrestling events at the Mall of America. Like this is this is the mall and they use this like just perfectly. So did you rollerblade through it? Uh, no, because I was 30 and, uh, <laughs> that's not an excuse. Uh, I, I did not have rollerblades with me, I guess. That's the excuse. If we ever go, I'm, I'm getting a quacker at the very least. I don't know that I'll rollerblade through it, but I'm certainly going to just annoy everyone and quack. I forgot to grab it today, but when I was, I was going through the closet yesterday, I think I found what the Jersey that I was talking about last week. I think I found my original Anaheim Mighty Ducks jersey from the Because, 90s. of course, you got one after the movie came out. I bought one. I, I told the story on the show last week. I bought it at the Belmore Street Fair for, like, $10. Nice. It was just, like, at, like, a little hockey shop. I don't know why, because my father, as soon as he saw it, and he saw that it was $10, like, I that was one of those things I didn't even need to ask for it. My father was just like, yeah, get this for the kids. That's so cheap. Because the jerseys <laughs> even then were selling for eighty-five bucks, so to get one for ten, it must have fallen off a truck. I mean, let's just call it what it is. It clearly fell off a truck. There's no reason why a year after the movie came out that I would get that jersey with the tags on it for ten dollars. I gotta get one. I want well, a Conway jersey. This was my first jersey too. Like after the movie came out, I was like, oh, okay, the Mighty Ducks is my team now, and so I got one of the the purple jerseys, the the home jersey. I think it was the the first variant, and that was yeah. the first jersey i ever owned and i was wearing it all the time nope you know when you're a kid you're always wearing the jerseys and like this just uh, i'm just thinking back now it just really kindled an interest in hockey that i did not have before um, 
you know, and I was, I was actually like, I, I remember I, I made my mom sign me up for ice skating and uh, I was going to actually play hockey. My parents had signed me up. I took some ice skating lessons. And then as we're about to get started, the ice rink burns down. Yeah, you too. Oh it was my him God. too. It was him too. I just told this story no, last I, week. No. Uh, okay. So I, I must confess, I listened to the episode and this did not happen. Oh, <laughs> I'm thinking that you were, that's not that fair. That was great. You totally had me. I was like, wait, I, I had two potential NHL stars that I, that I am sitting with right now. Yeah. No, you didn't. Yeah. No, yeah. Just, I love, I love that line. Yeah. My ice hockey career literally went up in flames. <laughs> that is really funny, but plausible because these two grew up together. I don't know if we, I can't yeah, remember I if we mentioned that at the top of the show, but. Yeah, you've known each other since kindergarten, so it's very possible that Andy would have been signed up for hockey at but, the same rate. But we did used to go to skate night there on Friday, so you remember what that was like when that place burned down. That was like that was just like gutting a hole in the community. Every Friday night was skate night. Oh, oh I know that was the place that, that you were, that totally makes sense now. Yeah, okay. I mean, it was hockey yeah. heads and then it was Top Gun hockey. And then it burned down. Yeah. Oh, yeah, wow. You're flashing back. I can see it. Yeah, I, for, I, I forgot about that. Now I'm just thinking, oh, yeah, it totally burned down because it was next to a lumber yard that burned down. And was it for the insurance money? Who knows? It was just. <laughs> <laughs> uh, amazingly, <clears throat> somebody left a saw on in the lumber yard next to the propane tanks. Yeah, that was how that fire started. All right, let's let's move on from this. I don't. That was I, well played, I, Andy. It was well done because I don't want to gloss over something else as we're rounding up the ducks. The quack attack is back, Jack. Well, yeah, the quack attack is back. Gee and Connie are a thing in this scene and then never again. Uh, but wait, yeah. are they? Because according to Gee, he was quote unquote so close. So again, the passage of time, even if it only has been a year, you have not kissed this girl yet. Oh, Step actually, up to the plate, Gee. I. I I, I noticed in the end of D1, when they're celebrating, they kiss. I only noticed this in my last time I watched D1 in prep for this discussion. They kiss in the end, like and it, like you barely notice it, and it's a flash. So like for him to say, like, I was this close, it's like, all right, calm down, dude. You've kissed her at least once before. You, no, you're absolutely right, because I thought I caught it once and then I was looking for it again. They really don't do anything to draw attention to it. They they hold hands when they go to the um the North game. Yes. And then yeah. they do follow up on it because you see them but it's such a wide shot. They don't draw attention to it at all. So I I think I'll I'll buy that the kiss gets interrupted and that Connie isn't going to let Gee finish and she's just going to go off with the team. But it's the line. I think it's bad writing that sort of collapses this scene a little bit. Can we all, are we going to also ignore the fact that Goldberg was not even going to finish the yes. season with District 5 because he was moving back to Philly and now his family owns a deli and they are mm -hmm. now planting roots in Minnesota? What happened there? Well, he became a goalie like, for District 5. Yeah, I guess he he was so good at being a goalie and he inspired his family and they're like, well, we have roots now and our son, the peewee winning goalie, we can't give that up. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have the frame, our son, the goalie. Right? 
Yeah. I would totally buy that they opened up a deli in Minnesota so that he could stay. But, like, it's kind of, like, weird with the continuity of the stuff that they will explain. Like, they will explain Charlie's mom getting remarried a year after. They'll explain away, oh, this is Jan, not Hans. But they mention nothing of Goldberg moving back or the missing players. Um, Yeah, where's Peter? Terry. (laughs) Terry, they're gone. They're just Danny Tamborelli. And Jesse. I mean, at this point, Danny Tamborelli is on Pete and Pete. So I'll buy that they couldn't get him back. And Nickelodeon's never going to let him do anything with Disney. Well, that's the bigger issue because most the reason that you see so many of these same kids, like if you think about how many uh, kids from the Mighty Ducks were also in heavyweights and you've seen a lot or, or even all that. Well, no, yeah. they let Keenan do it. Because well, no, Keenan no, no. was this, this, after this, Keenan was done with his Disney contract. This and was I before don't know that he was on all. That. Yeah, he yeah. wasn't overlapping, but Dan, Danny Tamborelli certainly was. But that's the thing: most of these kids, I think it's different because we look at them as people that we've grown up on. But like, there wasn't a huge pool of child actors in Hollywood. That's why you see like the same people throughout all of these '90s television shows and in the movies. So I think it makes sense to us that we're seeing these people and it's like, oh, that's that kid I like from Pete and Pete. Oh, that's that kid I've seen in this other thing. And you don't really think much more of it than it's an actor that you like. But to them, they're just taking all of these jobs because they want to keep working. So a lot of times if you are on a network show, you'll be shooting during the fall, winter, whatever. So these movies were your summer project. Um But, yeah, I think more than anything else, it was the network contracts that were causing an issue, and that's why you couldn't get some of these kids back. But, like, being that this is so aware of the throwaway lines to cover things up, it would have been nice to have, like, some sort of an explanation as to why they were not staying with the Ducks the next year. I hate to say it. I think think the biggest problem, and they just didn't want to come out and say it, was... They just weren't good enough to play for Team USA. I think that you you certainly did. Uh, some of them you lost to contracts because they couldn't sign on with others. But but then at the same time, like you said, Jesse's there, but Terry's not. But Terry was very much a background character. Peter was a foil to Gordon, but he was far from a great player. You know what I'm saying? I think that... They just wanted, I think they had characters that they didn't want to bring back that didn't fit the new film. I think there were some actors they just couldn't get back. So they just re, they just re, not even recast them. They just cast them off and brought in these new characters of other child actors that you recognize from other films. I think at the very least, though, they should have given Jesse a throwaway line because his father was such a big plot point in the first one. But also his younger brother just disappears without mention. Doesn't even root for him from the sidelines. Neither does Charlie's oh, mom, by the way. There I are mean, your no kid... parents. Yeah. There are no parents in this movie. And I'm like wondering the entire time, like, your kids are going to like the junior Goodwill Games, this junior Olympic sort of thing in L.A. You're flying all the way from Minnesota. There are no parents, no chaperones, no supervision. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, even, you know, you're so proud of your son, the goalie. I understand you have to run your deli now, but like one of Gold's, 
Goldberg's parents aren't repping in L.A.? Come on. Yeah, I had that as a note for later, so I'm glad you bring that up now. There's literally no parental support at the Junior Goodwill Games. Where the hell is Adam Banks' father? He couldn't take his <laughs> Hawks jacket off when he was playing for the Ducks, and it means so much, and I'm, I'm burying this now because I had this as a note later. But it, but but later, Adam has that line of, I re- yeah. it means so much to my dad, your father who didn't show up to go see you play in the Junior Goodwill Games. Well, he had stuff going on. Yeah, he, he, he was with on. Ducksworth. Okay, speaking of Adam Banks, I know we've spent a lot of time on this roundup, but th- I have one more note, and then we will get out of this. Yes, this to me is more egregious than than the Connie and Gee thing. Um, when when Jesse goes, "Hey, cake eater, you want to play some puck or whatever it is," his voice cracks when he's like, "Yeah," I'm like, "We couldn't have gotten a better take of this." I don't know. I, 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 I didn't think that was the worst. No, a more egregious thing is the geography here because <laughs> like just going from the Mall of America in Minneapolis or on the outskirts to Edina, Minnesota, like they even mentioned where they're all from. Like, oh, I'm from St. Paul. I'm from Minneapolis. I'm from Brooklyn Park. I'm from Edina. Edina, you know, they mentioned in like the first movie, like, oh, he's this rich kid. Cake Eater is a nickname, which is, you know, like what they insult him as being the rich kid. How much distance did they have to travel on rollerblades between all of these places <laughs> to pick up their team members? It must have been exhausting. It must have been, been tens of miles. Not to mention, the whole subplot of the first film is that the district lines got redrawn. Oh my They're God. all supposed to be in the same area in Minnesota. Oh my God, you're so right. Yep. You're so right. They they unraveled a big one there. Well, wow. I mean, yeah, well, but like maybe Minneapolis and St. Paul and Edina and Brooklyn Park are all so close to no. No, because you're right. They are treating it like Brooklyn, like they're all in one neighborhood where they can just, you know, skate over and round everybody up. Um, I do appreciate though that they even got the Hawks back for this roundup when they go to get Fulton and the Hawks are still bitter. And again, this is where they play to, well, it's only been a year because they're still right. salty that they lost, but I love that they were able to get those same actors back. That, that's my favorite, that they are still bitter about losing a junior hockey game. That, that's fine though. Also, where did they get the fishing wire out of nowhere to just try and trip the ducks that are just happen to be in the same area as them? You don't carry it on you when you hang out in the park? Not usually. <laughs> I mean, they're right by the water. How hard would it have been to give one of them a fishing pole? Just one of all yeah. they have mm. to do is be holding a fishing pole, and you don't question it, right? Or I would buy that these kids steal it from somebody who is fishing. Yeah, just see them swipe it from a tackle box from some old man who's not paying attention. There you go. No, but this is like that, you know, '90s thing that totally always happened, where it's like, all right, we have all the tools we need always. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so we get everybody rounded up and we bring the ducks together. And now a, a limousine pulls up. Okay, not unlike the first one. And there's nice, the Yeah, point. nice throwback to the first movie with, oh man, they got a limo. They must be rich. Yeah, and then Gordon says, I remember what it's like to ride around in one of these. I love, from the minute this happens... I absolutely love the subplot that weaves yep. in and out through this entire film with Hendrix Hockey and the corporate sponsorship and how they're trying to sway Gordon Bombay and how it distracts him from the reason why he's actually there. 
they pepper it in so nicely throughout the film because they do it without regressing the character. I would say they backslide him a little bit, but we don't take a step back and they don't undo everything that they built in the first one. I buy that he would have this carrot dangled in front of him because, you know, he was this hotshot lawyer. That was a big part of his identity. And he was fine. You know, he had to learn it, but he was fine eventually when he gave it all up for the ducks. And he said, no, this is really who I am. And even when he comes back to Jan, they do say something about him being a lawyer. And he's like, no, that's not me anymore. But as soon as Tibbles starts hooking it up, he does get very distracted by it. And he he is attracted to it again. Uh, so I, I love that they did this. I thought that but, was so smart. But to be fair, like, he shows in the contract. He's like, you're going to pay me that much to coach peewee hockey? Like, but to be, and in the first movie, he wasn't paid. He was doing this as community service. So right. where, is it, where is his career going to take him coaching peewee hockey part-time as most of the other coaches, you know, are? So good for him. It, yes, it, you're right. But the one thing that even as a kid, I couldn't understand. What I love about this is the fact that it's it's a commentary on how coaches and players now more than ever, how they have become distracted because it's not just the game. It is being a media darling. It is about Mm -hmm. sponsorship. It's about being in an ad. It's about a commercial. It's about endorsement money. This movie was very much ahead of its time in that way because it's even worse now than it is then. These guys now, their playing contracts are almost secondary to their endorsement money at this point. Right. But Mm -hmm. what I never understood as a kid, and again, maybe I was just too smart for my Mm -hmm. own good, why does this national brand care so much about a peewee hockey coach. Yeah. but And they try and explain it, though. Like, you know, they want to make Gordon and the team synonymous with winning and synonymous with their brand. And if they can make Gordon a star and Team USA a star, they'll sell more hockey sticks and skates and all that. So, like, that's their reasoning. And I don't know. It puts but... They put the kids on the Wheaties boxes so that other kids would see it and want to be on the Wheaties box and go buy Hendrix stuff. Actually, you know what? I will totally buy that notion because think about it. This was the 90s. It was when Nickelodeon and MTV started gaining popularity and you were advertising directly to kids. You were no longer trying to hook their parents to buy them things. You were going straight to your source. So I would absolutely believe that a big time company... And, you know, we were talking about how prevalent skating was in the 90s, whether it was roller skating or or ice skating, um, I would totally buy that they are trying to capitalize on the popularity of it. There, there's a probably a nice, very unintentional commentary on amateurism as well. The fact that Gordon Bombay gets this nice house in Malibu to stay in and this crazy endorsement contract. Are the kids getting paid? The ones who are on the Wheaties boxes? Probably not. <laughs> No, they're not because then they're they're no longer an amateur. They're a professional and they can't play in those games. Right. So that's the that's because then if they're getting paid, they also can't go to college on scholarship. So they they went so far as to like cover it up and stick them in dorms. Yeah. Right. But like, I guess 
really now thinking about this and the earlier scene about Charlie being an unpaid apprentice, they're really highlighting, I think it must be intentional, right? It must be clearly very intentional on Disney's part to highlight unpaid child labor. So really, <laughs> really, this movie, good for you, Disney, for <laughs> calling this out. Thank you. <laughs> so let's talk about now how we get introduced to the new members, the five new members of Team USA. We get... Uh, so we have Luis Mendoza, who's played by Mike Vitar. We'll talk about the cast later on, but I want to call him out specifically. He is just typecast as the fast kid because only a couple of years earlier than this, we saw him in his PF Flyers outrun the beast as Benny the Jet Rodriguez. He is just typecast as fast athlete kid. It really is crazy that he goes from the lead in the Sandlot to not even one of the main ducks. He's he's a second... Uh, well, I don't want to call him second string, but he wasn't in the first film, is my point. He very much is, though, a secondary character. If you think about... If you think about the role that the five new ones play, other than his physical comedy and not being able to skate and crashing into walls... That's really all that they lean on with him. With Portman, they develop this relationship with Fulton Reed. The Bash Brothers, The of Bash course. Brothers. Julie the Cat Gaffney just wants to prove that she made the right decision by leaving her team in Bangor, Maine, and she wants to play. She's got a pretty full arc, you're right. Yeah, Dwayne is just there for comic relief, but he keeps coming back with this lasso bit. Kenny mm. Wu... Gordon relies on him a lot because of the figure skating and being an Olympian. Half the and time he gets it doesn't a big work, goal. but he does get a big goal. He becomes the third Bash brother. Luis Mendoza literally is of the five. He's you have one A, one B, one C, one D, five. That's really what yeah. it is. So he, you're right. He goes from very much being a lead to being a secondary character. Well, no, but he does get the arc because he stops. Although that that's something we really have to suspend disbelief for i know that when they introduce him they make such a big deal out of the speed but would you really make it this far in your amateur hockey career if you can't actually stop on skates but if you look at half of the half yeah. of the characters in sports comedies look at all of the players in major league they are or even angels in the outfield they're good enough where you could buy that they should probably be at a professional level, but they do one thing so egregiously wrong that you almost can't believe that they made it that far. Right. Look, look at look at Ricky Bobby. Look at Talladega Nights. Okay. <laughs> the same. This is just a sports trope. You can go back and even in Slapshot, it's the same thing. Like this is just a trope of sports films in general. Happy Gilmore. Literally well, every single one. Well, it's so much harder to show development through character and the dialogue but and so much easier to show development and improvement on these physical skills and they can show you know with Luis Mendoza all right well he's getting better at stopping and now he can stop great there is the development that we need done so it's what, kind of easier to do that right right <clears throat> what I will say though regardless I am endlessly impressed with these actors. The kids from the first one stepping up their skating game, the kids that they just added. I mean, 
everybody across the board not only skates really well, but now like like they're turning tricks. They let them play more in scene than they did in the first one. Um, and I think that's why I was hooked on this movie so much because I really believed that these th- these actors were skaters. I had no idea. Not until Joshua Jackson was on Dawson's Creek did it like click in my mind that like, oh no, he's just an, a really talented actor. How do we feel about the team building here? Because I think that what Gordon is trying to <clears throat> convince them of work as a team by tying them together and seeing how when everybody goes in their own direction, it crumbles. I think that that works, but then you gotta, you have to go full 90s and do the really cheesy, now we're gonna line dance with Dwayne. How do you feel about this whole thing? I love it. I love the training montage. I love the bonding. I love not only the dancing. I, I really, I wanted to find some behind the scenes. There's no behind the scenes at all. For the Mighty Ducks. Not for the first one, not for the second one. It's not on Disney+. Plus. It's not on YouTube. I really wanted to find out more about the making of this film. To <laughs> me, I, I would be willing to bet that this is the first scene that they shot. Where they got everybody back together. So, you know, the original actors are jiving. They're getting to know the new ones. It just seemed like they were all having so much fun. I even think Emilio Estevez dancing might have been ad-libbed. Like, oh, all right, <laughs> I'll join in on the fun. Um... I love the scene, and I love the the team bonding in the dorms. The dorms, I have a big issue with, just as someone who has lived in a dorm, but also the fact that this is so much a short-term thing. They are coming to L.A. to be in this Junior Goodwill Games for, I don't know, a few weeks, but you see Portman's dorm room, and they've got Nirvana posters on the wall, so they take the time to decorate True. They, yeah, they take the time to move them in for what is, I mean, realistically, it can't be more than two weeks. If the if the Olympic Games run less than a month, how is it that just this tournament with, well, no, it is a Junior Goodwill Games. It's not just hockey. But, yeah, so you can assume it's three weeks, three weeks to a month. You're right. So they take an awful lot of effort to decorate a room that almost as soon as they get it unpacked, they have to pack up and leave again. I'm... Yeah, that that's my favorite thing. That but like that Dean Portman, this tough guy, gonna have a nice Nirvana poster on the wall that he brought with him supposedly, and you know he's got these nice tapestries. Good, good for him. <laughs> I'm really making the room his own. I mean, he and Fulton were not going to let a curfew hold them down, so I can buy maybe that they were out shopping in L.A. <laughs> On Yeah, on Rodeo Drive or wherever, wherever it was that they were. <laughs> we'll talk about that scene in a little while. Um, let's talk about how after the team gets built and put together, they're all in the locker room and Tibbles is there and they pull out the Team USA jerseys. And he goes, sponsored by your friends at Hendrix Hockey. It's got big Hendrix written down the sleeve, which at the time in U.S. sports you didn't see sponsorships on the jerseys. That's something that has only recently started to happen. However, they are the sponsor of the team. So it you don't question that you're going to see their logo on the jersey. Right. I like that Charlie calls out how everything says Hendrix on it and how he doesn't want to be a billboard. But at the same time, what has never jived with me is 
he goes, well, can't we just be the USA Ducks or at least use our old colors? No, because you're playing as Team USA. When have you ever seen Team USA in any sport not wear red, white, and blue? You're at an international tournament. Again, even as a kid, I kind of sat there and kicked my head to the side and went, no, Charlie, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, I'll... But they don't even explain it, though. They don't, like, Gordon doesn't say, no, you're Team USA, you're not Team Duck. He just says, oh, well, they're the sponsors, so that's why you wear red, white, and blue. And then totally dismisses him, don't worry, it's business stuff, Charlie. How and rude. he's he's never condescended him like that. He's always respected Charlie. And I'll buy that Charlie is wise beyond his years that he is calling this out. I don't want to be a, bu- a billboard. But yeah, the fact that he doesn't get why you have to wear red, white, and blue, you should want to. And like of all people, Charlie should recognize that what an opportunity this is. He should be so proud of it. I mean, I get that you have to call it out because this does speak to what we were talking about earlier of how Gordon is starting to get attracted to that limelight. And it's, it's not just because of the lawyer thing too. He was the hotshot lawyer. Then he had his chance at the hotshot NHL career. And now this is his chance to be a hotshot again. So Right now, he's still in that stage of I'm going to play by the rules and I'm going to do what Tibbles tells me to do to keep everybody happy. But we're going to see that slippery slope get really slippery once they start to win. Well, if anything, it's this is really good character development for Charlie, who now at this point is realizing I was unpaid sharpening those skates. I'm going to be unpaid being on this professional-ish team that Gordon Bombay is getting paid a lot of money for. You know, good for Charlie for recognizing that he's going to have sponsor logos all over him and he's not getting paid. Disney, thank you again for really <laughs> calling out the issues of amateurism. Thank you. <laughs> so now in the next scene, you get Team USA's first game against Trinidad-Tobago. Mm. Um, and I mean, Team USA just blows them out of the water. Now, the Trinidad team, they were on the poster for the film because it was the two players with the bubble gum meeting at center ice. Trinidad Tobago in their tie-dye hockey jerseys. Trinidad Tobago, who plays <laughs> steel drum music. I love it. When they score <laughs> goals. I, as a kid, wanted one of those Trinidad jerseys so bad. They have the coolest jerseys out of any of the teams. They really do. Yeah. But uh, that kind of undoes the scene prior, right? Because they, I mean, it is the colors, but it's a tie-dye jersey. So to Charlie's point, you could sort of incorporate both, right? You could, but I think the, the whole idea behind this is, you know, Trinidad's got... I mean, yes, some people might look at that now and be like, I don't know that I'd put that in a film made in 2022. Um, A tie-dye jersey and steel drums, I think they'd they'd be uh, accused of being very much on the nose. Maybe borderline cultural appropriation. But the whole premise, though, is they're they're embracing their culture and bringing it to the ice. It's not unlike what they do in Cool Runnings. So in this case, it's like they're just taking... They're, they're taking the pride in what they do at home and bringing it to this international tournament. 
So, yeah, like, Charlie, you if they're going to wear a tie-dye jersey, you're going to wear red, white, and blue. Call out the Hendrix sleeve, but don't question why you're not out there as the Ducks. Or put the Ducks logo in red, white, and blue. That's what I'm saying, is that you, if you want to embrace what makes your team your team, they are sort of negating it with Trinidad and Tobago. Well, watch, watching it again most recently, I was... I was really rooting for Trinidad and Tobago. Like they come from a country where it does not snow and they're coming to play in this international competition and then they just get destroyed. It's like the Trinidad team is what happens if you get cool runnings from the perspective of the Swiss. Like, that's what this group is. <laughs> it's totally true. Like I wanted, I wanted the cool runnings version of this movie. I want the, the Trinidad and Tobago story version of this movie where they get together and they learn how to skate and they go to this international competition and they do their best. Give me that version of this movie. It's true. They probably should have started with Italy or something, right? This, this is pretty rough on Trinidad and Tobago. It's not fair. So what this scene does do, though, is it introduces you to Russ Tyler, played by Keenan Thompson. And Keenan, this is the first time you see him. He, he pays money to go to the game to heckle Team USA. I love it. I instantly fell in love with this character. It's a great introduction. And I think that what it does is it sets up later how important not just he is as a character, but how important it is to embrace why he is heckling Team USA. I also really love that they kept the consistency with Jesse's character because Jesse was always the one to have that mouthpiece when it came to calling out Gordon on when he wasn't being fair to the team. So now I love that these two are matching wits. I think I thought this was such a good idea. And I think if he had gone after anyone else, um, like if Russ was going after Banks or something, it just would have been too much of a retread of Jesse in the first one. I also like it more here for Jesse because, as I said in in last week's review of the first film, Jesse wanted to be a duck for about 10 minutes. You know, like now it makes sense here. Like, honestly, yes. this would have been, it's good character development if if Jesse didn't have that moment in the first film, because now Jesse, if he would have been a fly in the ointment, along with Peter, for Gordon, to see him develop now into having pride and wanting to be a part of Team USA, it would have... I mean, Jesse is a much better character in this film anyway, mm. but it would have done more for him looking back if they would have slowly progressed him throughout the first film and then they fully transition him here in this film. It would have been a good arc early on for Jesse. Right. So we also get the first look at the Bash Brothers. And this, I have to be honest with you, almost as much as the, the Ducks jerseys that we'll talk about when they come out at the end of the film, as crazy as this sounds, I think that this did just as much to change hockey from the perspective of an adolescent as those jerseys did. Because everybody who saw this that was a kid either wanted to be or wanted to watch in the NHL a version of the Bash Brothers. Oh, for sure. Everybody loves the goon line. So, we see the Team USA success 
and they continue to beat up on these teams, and now we have the press conference because we've heard about Iceland, but we really haven't seen Iceland, right? So we're having the press conference. The Hendricks polar bear is there, and here comes Wolf, the dentist, Stanson, with his team behind him wearing all black because they're the villains, and they have to tell us that they are. But I'm t- nobody would interrupt a press conference just to say that team of children is going down. <laughs> this would not happen at a press conference at the Junior Goodwill Games. But well, the fact the 90s, that it though, wouldn't, so you could. but but that's the thing. It would never happen, and it did. So that's why the introduction to this team as the villains and Stanton as the mouthpiece is a perfect, perfect introduction. So how much time do you want to spend talking about the fact that there are no Icelandic players in the NHL? <laughs> Not a one. Well, they all got bl- they all got blackballed cool. after after the dentist got tossed out. Uh, I see. Yeah, so he was the first and then after that the NHL was like, "No, the dentist is such a poor representation for this sport. Forget it. We're never bringing another Iceland player to the NHL ever again." Like I like that the Iceland team are the bad guys because as a kid with limited understanding of professional hockey, it makes sense. It's like, oh, Iceland? Yeah, they, of course, their country is covered in ice and it's in the country's name. So why wouldn't they have good hockey players? And, you know, the Iceland team, their colors, they're the same colors as the Hawks. They're black jerseys. They're clearly the bad guys. But I, I was like, I don't think I know a single Iceland player. And so then I went to look this up and there has, there has never been a professional hockey player in the NHL from Iceland, not a single one. Um, Jamaica, Ireland, Australia, Lebanon, Japan, Hungary, and Lithuania have all had one NHL player. Iceland has had none. Wow. You really did your homework. Yeah, and like of the top 10 of all time, Canada has 65% of all hockey players, and Canada isn't even really represented in this movie at all. There's You never see them. You never see them, but like there, no mention, like there's passing mention of them, the fact that they're in the standings, but they're not in the finals. They don't play USA. They don't, there's nothing, no mention of Team Canada. There is mention of Team Russia at least, but not of any of the other countries where hockey players come from, really. Like, uh, out of the top 10 countries, it's Canada, USA, Sweden, Russia, Finland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Switzerland, Germany, and then the UK in 10th place with 0.5% of hockey players coming from that country. Yet we get Germany, we get Italy, we get Trinidad and Tobago, but nothing from Canada, Sweden, Finland, Czech, nothing. Well, I mean, I guess they would have done that on purpose, right? Because they build them up as the villains so much. Are you really going to put Canada in black jerseys? <laughs> and and you're going to make Canadians villains? Like, no, you're absolutely not. I mean, aside from the level of disrespect that it would be to not put them in their own colors and have to have them in these black jerseys just to show the difference between like, okay, these are the bad guys. The whole team is the bad guys. I'm wondering if that's why they went for Iceland specifically being that they don't have a lot of players and you could sort of build up this fictitious thing around them. Well, originally 
when this film was mm. written, the villains were the Russians. And it was supposed to be that USA versus it was supposed to be USA versus the Russians. Yeah, no. Um We're not and, they, do that. and they decided not to do it. Now, if you made this film today, it's absolutely Team USA versus the Russians again. We've gone back sure. to 1980, 42 years later. But they didn't. They rewrote the film and they used Iceland. And let me tell you something, too. This actually does give a little bit of levity to what Charlie had said earlier about why can't we be the USA Ducks? Because it's it's Team Italy. It's Team USA. It's Team Trinidad-Tobago. It's Team Russia. This is the Iceland Vikings. It's not. They actually have a mascot with a name and a moniker. So you technically could have been the USA Ducks. True. Oh, also, there is no black in the Iceland flag. The Iceland flag is blue, white, and red. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. And, and, and they show you that at the end of the film when the two teams play together and they have the flags side by side. Yeah, they do. But it, it it works if like it works in the sense that if you're a kid and you're like, oh, they're Team Iceland. I know nothing about the country Iceland because I'm uh, an American adolescent. Um, and uh, yeah, sure. Let's just put on them and project onto this bad guy team whatever we want to. That's like what the writing was. Right, because they're also building up this idea that the people of Iceland are giants. Because all of these, I mean, I get that for the scale and scope, you're going to, you know, put these menacing kids up against the ducks. But if these players are all supposed to be around the same age, these Iceland players look like fully grown adults. Like they, they really, I mean, I think they, they had to have at least drawn from minor league NHL teams to get, or minor league NHL, listen to me, <laughs> from, from minor league teams or the NHL to cast that team because they are gigantic and they are, they are planting the idea of like, what are you feeding these people in Iceland that they're that much bigger than team USA? I mean, I'll still, I'll suspend all of it though, because I just love the idea how they built them up as the villains and even Stanton's backstory to call him the dentist. And, you know, Charlie's got like all the Intel. So when Julie uh, is asking like, Oh, who is this guy? Um, or I think it's Ken Wu who says this guy was a dentist. You know, I love that they built up this legendary player that everybody knows his spotty history. What I also love about this press conference is what it does for Gordon's character because he starts really out of his depth and Tibbles doesn't prep him for any of the questions. He doesn't prep him for the media circus, none of it. And Gordon is able to answer all of the questions effectively. And then especially when Iceland shows up and they start smack talking, you know, he gives us as cheesy as it is. We're Team USA and we're going to go all the way. Emilio Estevez gives this subtle little shrug of I don't know where I just pulled that from. And it's such a great subtle moment for the character because this is where Gordon gets thrown in and this is where he's going to start to make the turn of I'm going to buy into all of this. And for as much of a 90s trope as it is to see someone sell out in Hollywood, because that was a big thing. How many movies did we have come out about 
oh, this person who I grew up with is not who they who I thought they were and they sold out. Um, they do it so differently here. It doesn't feel like a trope. It was kind of like, well, the idea of selling out is like, like the worst sin you could commit in the nineties. Exactly. Like, like, Oh, like, like, especially like in like the music scene, if you're a band and you make it big and you sell out, like God forbid you make money off of your music or what you do and enjoy doing. No, that is like the biggest sin you could make in the 90s is selling out and getting paid to do anything. Right. And that always bothered me, especially with the bands where they were like, I just want to play my music. No, you don't want to you don't want to get paid $30 to show up at this bar today and play for 11 drunks. You 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 put your music out there because you want people to hear it. If 10 million people buy this album, you did exactly what you came here to do. And now you're getting rewarded handsomely from it. And now you, people can't just take your work and use it to make their own money. You get a royalty now from that. It's there to protect you as the artist. You can't sit there and tell me that this is the worst possible thing that you ever did. If no, this is not, what's going to happen is sorry. <laughs> no, if, if if that's what you want to do, don't even sign on with a label. Just make your mixtape and move on. No, because that's what you have to do. Because what's going to happen is the slippery slope. You're going to find success in your music and then you're going to get signed to a label and then they're going to change you and then you're going to put out a concept album or something that's not true to yourself because you're an artist and then it's going to be commercially successful but not really true to your art and then you're a sellout and your childhood friend is going to call you out or in this case the team right captain blood Captain Blood. And and that was a thing, too, right? That was a big trope of the 90s, which has now, like, made its way to Hallmark movies because <laughs> it's just what it's become of, like, the townie that left and went to a city and became successful and everybody else hates that they still live in townie world and they're making their $29,000 a year which if that's what you make hey I'm not I'm not slamming you for it we've all been there but you like can't hate somebody that went and found success and became successful but that's what I'm saying where this film does it differently is because they make it about man versus himself like yes the team does call him out and tries to strip him down back to his roots but really this is still about Gordon's internal struggle not as much as the first one but because they gave us so much groundwork in the first one this is what I was talking about before, where we see him start to backslide into that lawyer, I need to win mode, because, you know, he gets through the press com conference unscathed, but you can tell he really doesn't want to do it. And then they give him the big Malibu pad uh, because he's winning. And if, if he takes care of Hendrix, Hendrix is going to take care of him, as Tibbles tells him. Uh, and then they throw the party and they've got all these Olympians and... NHL players and for some reason Kareem Abdul-Jabbar um, and this is where you can see that Gordon still feels out of place and he's not really comfortable in this scene yet but as he starts talking to people he's getting there this is where we are starting to really bridge Gordon back to his lawyer roots the Air Bombay I mean, well, the Air <laughs> right? Bombay loafer for, for kids who want to coach I love that that that's as good as to your point, the talk boy. Well, so did did they make an Air Bombay loafer after this movie? Because like clearly, 
I can't imagine that Disney wouldn't. They did. They're pumping all this money into the team, and now you're going to have more merch? They didn't, but years later, Skechers made a shoe that could be either a dress shoe or a casual shoe. It was like you could do either of them, dress it up, dress it down, and I had two pairs in different colors, Mm. and I did refer to them as the Air Bombays. And when I went into the store to get them that day, I asked the person behind the counter, where are the Air Bombays? They knew exactly what I was asking for and brought me right <laughs> over to them. I remember when you brought those home and you were like, I got the Air Bombays. Well, to be fair, any shoe could be a casual shoe and a dress shoe if you don't care. And that is becoming more and more possible and more and more common with every passing day. Well, the technology is advanced so much. That, that has to be it. Yeah. All right, let's talk about going to Rodeo Drive. Let's talk about the Rodeo Drive scene. I have always loved this scene with uh, Dwayne, Averman, Goldberg, and Gee. Yes. Yeah, that, that was the four that were there. I have always loved this. I've loved that. It starts with Goldberg saying, I got to get my mom a t-shirt from no, Beverly Hills. G- Jesse. Uh, no. It's Jesse Goldberg, Averman, and, and Dwayne. Okay, so you're right. It was Jesse. I believe, yeah, it was. It was. I think you're right. It was Jesse. Well, rego- it doesn't matter. He has Connie. He doesn't want a model. But I love that this whole thing starts with walking down Rodeo Drive and Goldberg says, I got to get my mom a t-shirt that says Beverly Hills. Like he's looking for the $3 t-shirt and he thinks that Rodeo Drive is the place to get it. He thinks he's in Times Square, basically. For some reason, this is one of the most memorable scenes in the film. I think, I mean, one of the things that I gravitated most toward, it's the practical joke aspect. Like, I remember when they put the shaving cream on Dwayne in the dorms. And then I remember this one where they're, uh, you know, using the intercarms to to order fries. Yeah. Um, Those are things that just stuck with me. And I think they still hold. They're still funny. I mean, I'm not laughing out loud the way I did when I was a kid, but I'll still get a chuckle out of it. I I think that the whole idea that they're going into these super high-end exclusive stores that you need an appointment to get into, and Goldberg lies about being Aaron Spelling's nephew just to get in so that they can drink orange juice and watch this fashion show that is being put in front of them. I think Averman nails it with the look on his face the whole time. Yeah. This scene is hysterical, and I think it still lands. But it's also got a joke in there for the adults, because like as a kid, I don't know who Aaron Spelling is. Right. Right. Yeah. I think if there's one thing where where the writing is a little bit sloppy at times in this film, I think it does succeed in there's enough comedy there for a kid and there's enough going on where the adults also think it's funny. Like like at the end of the press conference scene where when the polar bear walks past Miss McKay and goes, hey, Missy, how about a bear hug? You just <laughs> think it's funny as a kid that the... <laughs> On a very innocent level, you think, oh, that's funny. The mascot wants to give her a hug. It has a completely different context as an adult, but it's 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 a funny enough joke where it's over the head of a kid, but you laugh at how uncomfortable it is as an adult. They do a good job of peppering in the humor here. There is something for everyone. What I really like, too, is how they also pepper in the popularity of these junior Goodwill games. And now people are starting to recognize them as the ducks because they're paying attention. So I will totally buy, you know, you go from Russ buying a ticket to heckle them to an arena full of people by that last game. Um, 
you know, I don't think that that's Disney trying to gloat and and really push the idea that this team that their team is going to be successful. Um, I just thought it was a smart choice in terms of it is sort of an underdog story. And in the 90s, we absolutely all would have had eyes on it and been paying attention. And it would have been, you know, just these national headlines that everybody's involved in. Let's also not gloss over that they're getting recognized in the store, which is very funny within its own, and they try to cover it up. And it's, you're right, it's the first time they're being recognized. But Dwayne is also wearing his Team USA jacket at the time. (laughs) True. Long sleeve jacket, windbreaker, in Southern California, in the summertime. Let's just put that out there. See, that is surprising, though, because they do have this Hendrix deal, and I'm surprised they didn't push that narrative further of, no, Charlie, you have to wear these colors all the time. I'm surprised, and I mean, I get it for the world of the film. They are going to want to change up the colors and, you know, really embrace those great 90s colors and baggy clothes, and you are going to want to show that, but I'm surprised that they didn't make them wear the Hendrix gear all the time. The next scene that you get is the uh, the date scene between uh, Gordon and the trainer from Iceland. They go out for ice cream, and that's where we f- hear that uh, Greenland is full of ice and Iceland is very nice. And that, that line will stick with me forever. But you get Fulton and uh, Portman who are breaking curfew, and they're, no one's going to tell us about a curfew. Oh, let's go get ice cream. It's so funny <laughs> to hear that line transition into the next. But how do we feel about the drama around the whole idea that Gordon went out and had ice cream with the trainer? What sticks out to me more than anything else is that poor Fulton is always the one who catches Gordon saying the wrong thing at the wrong time or doing the wrong thing at the wrong time because he is there with Peter in the first one when Gordon says, ah, they're losers. They don't deserve to live. Uh, As a kid, though, like, I was definitely on Portman and Fulton's side. I'm like, no, you can't. You can't have ice cream with the other team's trainer. But, like, as an adult, it's like, all right, whatever. Right. That's the. I think that's the one thing that doesn't quite hold up it's not like he's out with Stanson, right? Like, he's out with the trainer. She's not even a coach. She's basically the team doctor. But, like, the stakes of it, when seeing it as a kid versus an adult, feel different. They do. They absolutely do. No, and especially just looking at it in terms of story, they have gone out of their way to make it so black and white, Iceland, bad, villain. Yeah, it does cross that line even when you're looking at it as an adult. So now we have the game against Iceland, right? And now Gordon comes in and he's got his slicked back hair and he's super polished and he's super corporate and he's super Hendrix. And he is not at all prepared for Iceland. Absolutely. And like, they just get the their doors blown off in this game. Can we talk more about this specifically? Because I don't, I feel it feels like sacrilege saying this now, like years later. Because at the time it was like I was as a kid, I was like Gordon is this amazing coach. But in hindsight, and now, Gordon Bombay is a terrible hockey coach. He he's not ready for Iceland, and you see Iceland, the trainer and the dentist are watching every single one of Team USA's games. They are prepared. They 
are ready for the flying V, you know, like, and they're not doing, and Team USA is not doing much by way of training. He's not rooming near them. He's living in Malibu while they're in the dorms. He's not very inspirational either until later in the movie and they're calling him Captain Blood and he show, later in the movie he's going to show up late to a game and blow his little duck whistle that they almost forfeited and lost the tournament for because he was distracted like he had to rollerblade <laughs> at sunrise <laughs> but I will buy the notion of him being distracted because he's got to do all this other stuff like the press conferences, like the party that Tibbles throws him for seemingly no reason. Um, But what I never did pick up on as a kid was it wasn't just a lapse in judgment of him hanging out with the other team. They did do that on purpose. Stanson set her up to woo him, if you will. Right. So that they could learn all about him. I, I never realized how underhanded the whole thing was. And I what I don't buy to Andy's point is that they Iceland is there watching their practice and everything. That would never fly in in the real world. You don't no. get to go to another team's practice. No, those not, are not private. Even, not even watching the practice, but like in the stands for every USA game, you see the, the trainer and the, the dentist taking notes right. and like watching the games. You never see Gordon watching other teams' games to take notes on them to prepare on against them. Like, really, Gordon doesn't want it like the dentist wants it. And, and at the very end, I kind of feel bad for the guy because he's done all this research and he's trained this team. And objectively, the Iceland team is better. They're more trained. They don't have these gaping holes in their game of not being able to stop for example. <laughs> no, that's a totally fair point. What I like, though, is that they also doubled down on that idea of Iceland being prepared. And immediately, Portman, who is going to be your only chance trying to match these guys, is taken out of the game. Um, getting kicked out for what he did, I think that's a reach. Um, and then they do it again where Goldberg is getting tired and they take Julie out. That one I really don't like because in the scene prior, she just asked Gordon, when are you going to give me my chance? And then he's, oh, Goldie, uh, Goldberg's on a hot streak right now. I can't pull him out. Which was the right call, by the way. No, it is. It absolutely is. Uh, but she gets her chance. They're not even in play. And I, I get it. We're also building on that 90s idea of a strong female. So they mouth off to her. And she knocks them down. Save it for the game. Take it out on them in the game. And I know that that is a lesson that Gordon later teaches them after he's no longer Captain Blood. And he burns his Hendrix uh, cardboard cutout. They're going to learn that lesson. But she wanted her shot so badly. And she blew it. Well, here's the thing, though. There is no reason why she should have been tossed from that game. There's no reason why Portman should have been tossed from the game. These just seem like the softest officials of all time. She basically just shoves them down and gets thrown out of the game for intent to injure. However, in the next clip, after a goal is scored, after a goal is scored, one of the Iceland players literally chops the wrist of Adam Banks and gets a two-minute slashing penalty. Which how is, is no that not? In, how is that not intent to injure? But Julie Gaffney pushing two guys to the ice is. 
But right, because like they've so been studying Banks. They know that's his injury, so they went for it. But that, there's so much of that where, like, someone doesn't have the puck, and then Iceland just takes him down. Like, oh, okay, that's okay. Then we could just trip and slash at whoever we want because there are no consequences for us by comparison. But, I mean, for the, as far as the plot goes, they need to do this. That's the only reason it's there. I also like that they cover their tracks as far as Fulton in this game because, okay, you've eliminated one half of the Bash brothers so you don't have your goon line, but he is still the secret weapon with his slap shot. But Iceland is even able to, like, no one gets Fulton's slap shot except for Iceland. Right. I love that it left a mark, too. And that's where this film does just as good a job of towing the line between, like, making it a really interesting matchup and you get very invested in the sports of it all, but it still has that underlayer of comedy that they've peppered in really nicely. And let's talk too about, we haven't mentioned this yet because it's really on display here, how good the cinematography is in terms of cinematography. And in terms of hockey footage, this is some of the best footage that you're going to see in the entire franchise. The, the footage, it's so well shot. It's, it's incredible how good the hockey playing is in this film. And that's what I'm saying. The actors are doing so much more of it. Well, Sean, I, I know you've gone on record before talking about like the best five sports movies of all time. And I know, tragically, this does not make the cut. But this has to be top five hockey movies of all time. I have it ranked number three. Behind Miracle and Slapshot? Correct. Wow, you're good. Yep, and I actually had that in my notes. Yeah, I have it as the third best hockey movie of all time. Well, I don't know. The underdog story here is a bit more compelling. I I don't want to say that. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) You bite your tongue. You bite your tongue. But I guess nice, perfect segue here into their 12-to-1 loss kind of mirroring, mirroring Miracle. And I, then, yes. It's I, it's so yeah. funny you say, I have Herb Brooks written here as a note at the end of this scene. It is literally the exact same thing. The game ends, they're getting ready to take their pads off, and he's got them out there, you know, basically running blue line to blue line, just gassing them late at night yep. to prove a point. It, it literally is the exact same thing. And this is a decade before miracle even comes out. So I, I'm just curious if it like how intentional it was or how much the script writer or screenwriter knew about miracle uh, versus like with the context and all that. I don't know. Wouldn't surprise me if, uh, if miracle was maybe written because of the popularity of hockey and they were trying to decide like which story do we go with and that's why Miracle came out a little bit later on like if if it was something that was being developed for quite a while and they decided Mm -hmm. to run with the Mighty Ducks because they had the team we did try to get Michael Eisner on to interview him for our our 200th episode so that would have been a really good question to ask the whole yes the whole product placement of of this film would have been worthwhile discussing but we're not quite there yet we're gonna get there though um regardless of you know whether they were aware of miracle or not and how they were coaching what this does 
too really does push the story forward because now the kids are all burnt out and McKay gives them sort of a day off and they're still trying to stretch and condition and whatnot. And then you get Russ breaking into their their warm up, which is completely unrealistic. But I will suspend that disbelief for what is one of the greatest scenes in this film, the schoolyard puck game. Mm. Yeah, I absolutely love this scene. I love what it does for the characters. Obviously, we have to have the tie-in to eventually get Russ on the team. But this is, goes back to what we were talking about before, about that 90s skater culture. And I love that we see how it was in places where the weather is cold, like Minnesota, where it's all about hockey. But skating was such a thing. We get to see what it was like in L.A. The other thing that I think it successfully does is something that, and it takes it to the next level, I think. And I had mentioned it in regards to the first film last week. What a good job they did of incorporating different cultures and different kinds of people, right? This is such an inclusive film. The minute you put them in that inner city setting. Yes. And it is street yard puck. And they're they're not as polished. They're They're using a trash can as a goal. And they've kind of just put together their pads with whatever it is that they could find, not unlike the ducks in the first film, but it's it's different here because it carries a different kind of swagger. Um, I love the fact that the, I loved it as a kid and I appreciate it more now as an adult that you bring these kids in and it's now we're going to, you know, you guys know, and Russ says, you guys know how to play in front of sponsors. Now we're going to show you how to play as a team. And I think that that's really interesting because three quarters of this team, literally three quarters of the team, 15 of the 20 players were the Ducks. So the Ducks have now forgotten how to play as a team, and you bring them in here, and it's not just show you how to play as a team, but also show you how to defend yourselves against these Iceland players, and especially with Kenny Wu. Everything about this is absolutely brilliant. It, it kind of also, to my point earlier, goes back to... Gordon Bombay not being a very good coach and him not being ready for Iceland. And so the team gets better because some random guy challenges them to a street hockey game. And then the team learns how to be a team and Kenny Wu uh, learns how to fight. But Gordon isn't teaching them how to do this. I love it. It, it was just such a smart way to tie everything together. Not only do you get a really fun scene with a great soundtrack, because I think that is really what makes it memorable, too. It is that these these L.A. kids are teaching them actual lessons, to your point, that they're never going to learn from Gordon, not just because he's distracted, but they are learning things that... Grow, Gordon growing up in Minnesota was just never going to be able to teach them. And especially to your point with Ken Wu, um, you know, I they, they sort of make a joke out of it like, oh, come on, kid, I'm just messing with you. But he's, you know, these kids that grew up in L.A., they're defending their pride. They're defending their turf. So he does make the point of saying, if anybody ever comes at you like that, like, here's how you handle that. Ken Ken's an Olympic figure skater. He's not even going to learn that from his teammates, certainly not Gordon. So I, I just love how they bring everything together here. It's such a great scene. And admit it, we all tried the knuckle puck. This chain... This, 100%. Another thing that totally changed hockey, at least as a kid, everybody tried the knuckle puck, which doesn't work, but we all tried it. 
No, well, and I love that you also get the separation between what Fulton does with the slap shot because even he's impressed by this. Well, they needed to step up Fulton's, like they needed something to do. And so like, yeah, in the first movie, Fulton's slap shot was this lethal weapon and they are using it in this movie, but they need something new. And so they have this knuckle puck where he shoots it and you have this beautiful camera angle of like chasing, following, and the puck defies physics and it goes up and down and up and down like a roller coaster before it hits the net. Perfect. I'm still trying to figure out how they pulled off that shot. I was going to ask you, Jackie, you know stuff about cameras. Tell me how they did that. Can't figure it out. To this day, can't figure it out. Um, maybe they green screen the puck and then superimpose it over over the tracking shot going into the net. But I, it looks like the puck is rigged on the camera and we just can't see it. It follows mm -hmm. it too perfectly. I, I yeah. don't know. I'm I'm still trying to figure that one out. You guys um, have the wrong guest for this episode. You should <laughs> clearly have had the first AD or, or camera operator or something, but director of photography, what are they doing right now? I don't know. <laughs> I I was trying to find literally anything, any kind of making of just to see how they did stuff like this. Um, what I appreciate too is that they didn't, lose Fulton's character by giving somebody else the trick shot because now yeah. Fulton is a bash brother. He's got his own thing. So you can have that one up shot with the knuckle puck. Yeah. So we get them now reunited as a team. And while that's happening, Jan has showed up and we're so happy that Jan is here to tell Gordon that he looks like he just got out of the shower, which is for whatever reason, it's always one line in a movie that I just can never shake and it's always a line that like as as soon as i say it you know the film but it's like like why do you remember that like when we first started going on vacation together the first time we flew to disney world and they called us to get on the plane i just picked up my bag and i looked at you and i said come on eileen they're boarding and you knew right away that it was from uh home alone but of all of the lines from Home Alone, why that's the one that I just call out loud and that's the one that stuck with me, I don't know. And for all of the other reasons, it's not it's knuckle puck time. It's you look like you just got out of the shower is the one line <laughs> from this movie that has always stuck with me. Uh, speaking of, of, of that with the slick back hair and everything like that, I'm curious how much of it do you think that Gordon's whole identity now of the slick back hair and the suits and showing how much like how much of it is them trying to show that he's being distracted by the corporate sponsors versus him emulating the dentist who is oh. this opposing coach who he used to he played a season in the NHL. He's a coach of this winning team. He's very serious. He's also got the slick back hair and the suits. So I'm curious how much of it is emulation versus other than that it's a coincidence because everyone was looking back their hair in the 90s. See, and this is why you are the perfect guest for this episode. Screw the cinematographer or first AD or whoever. No, for you to pick up on something like that, that's so interesting because I didn't read it that way at all. I'm looking at this as part of his backslide into being who he was as a lawyer. I wasn't even, Stanson was not even a blip on my radar at that point, but I, that's a really, really good point. And, and beyond that also, like, they do just a lot of comparison between the dentist and Gordon. Like, whenever they're near each other, 
like uh, a thing I just kept noticing is they always have a certain angle, camera angle to make Gordon look smaller than the dentist, just yeah. of how they shoot it. And like he is shorter, Emilio is shorter than uh, the dentist, but they like always shoot it at a certain angle. So he like looks like he's being towered over, like he has to measure up to him or this David Goliath situation. No, you're absolutely right because no actor is ever going to let that fly. Like mm. any any actor, especially males, they always <laughs> want to look taller. They will put them on an apple box. They will shoot it at a certain angle. They are never going to intentionally make their lead, especially look smaller than they really are. So it is all about creating these. It's, it's almost but like they wanted to like space jam Iceland, mm. right? Like make them these giant monsters in this, comparison. But this happened a few times with Gordon through the movie, like when he is being introduced to the celebrity guests at the Malibu, uh, his Malibu house, and he's meeting the NHL players. He is noticeably shorter than all the NHL players. Obviously, he's shorter than Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and that's a bit of a gag there of a comparison. But like everyone, he he is shorter than, and they kind of use it for the effect of he's out of his element here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, more so than they had to in the in any of the other previous scenes. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I think. They do it for comedic purpose, but I think they do try to to make it like the Iceland team is some big towering team and that it's not just the kids, but also with the coach. Um, I mean, look, Robert De Niro has they put him in platform shoes to make him look taller. You're, you're right. A lot of the male leads in these films don't want to look short. But in this case, I think Emilio Estevez, I think he kind of understood what the assignment was. You know what I'm saying? Like. He is a shorter guy, but he also knows that he is supposed to look shorter than Stanson. Right. Well, regardless, now he's going to go find himself, right? He's going to go skating at sunset, much How like he did. How beautiful was that, by the way? It really is. I mean, it was beautiful when they did it in the first one, when he's out on his pond and they're, you know, cutting back to when he was a kid doing the same thing. And they really do use the winter to their advantage to make it look pretty. But now they... They really did lean into the story setting. The film does a really good job of that overall, not just with the Rodeo Drive scene, but here where, you know, they're in Venice Beach. Uh, the colors are just gorgeous. And, you know, is it kind of a cliche because they did it in the first one? Yes, where he mm -hmm. needs to find himself. But what sort of separates it is that this is the first time we've seen him lace up in this film. He's mm -hmm. done it all already in the first one, talking about like running time in the film uh, where, you know, he's not injured. It's just him getting over. Well, I thought I was this lawyer and now I want to go back to my roots. He has laced up at this point, but because of his injury in the second one, he has not put on skates. Not once in this film. Not, not, other, not other than in the first scene when he gets injured. We're talking about post-injury. Yes, yes post-injury. So this is sort of a big deal and a big moment of, wow, this is the first time I've actually healed enough where I can skate. So as cliche as it is that this is always where he finds himself, I will buy that he did have a wake-up call, like, this is really where I want to be. I feel comfortable in my skates. Um you know, and this is where his redemption arc comes into play because he's lost his shot at the big time in the NHL. 
So it was very natural for him to get caught up in the Hendrix thing because now he thought he was going to be a big shot. And even when he talks to McKay, we sort of skipped over it. Um, where she says, oh, they're calling you Captain Blood. And he's like, well, well, this could mean so much more. For right. who? These kids are not even getting paid. You don't <laughs> care about the future of their careers. This is all about you and how this is now your shot, your third shot at the big time, really. Um, so now this is where all of that gets stripped away and he realizes that, no, this is about me and the team. Nice for him to have this redemption and this realization while he is late for his team's hockey game. That I don't buy. That I will give you. As much as, I mean, I think that's just trying to push the narrative of strong female and not completely making this like a guy's film. I mean, they had Connie in the first one. Okay, great, wonderful. It wasn't a total sausage fest. They tried to build on that with Julie and Coach McKay, or um, Coach McKay. Well, she is Coach McKay in this scene, and, right? And we can start scene, calling she her is that. Coach McKay. Um, so they real, they really are trying to throw the gals a bone in this one. Did they do it the right way? Mm, I feel like there's more that they could have done, but I'll, I'll buy McKay as the stand-in. Mm-hmm. I'll buy McKay as the stand-in, um, but in regards, in response to something you said. When when McKay says, what's next for who? Adam Banks does point out the fact that there are scouts in the stands. This is where now the yes. prep schools, for the kids who are really serious about hockey, the prep schools and the colleges are starting to look at these kids. And, and, and the junior divisions are starting to look at these kids. Kids that do go on to play at the World Juniors when they're playing junior hockey before they get drafted into the NHL. The scouts are there. So there is something on the line for the kids. It's just because so much emphasis is put on the Hendricks side of this, Mm. we lose Mm. sight of the fact that there actually is something there on the line for the kids, like an Adam Banks or a Charlie Conway, that are very serious about pursuing hockey permanently. Well, it just feels like there there was not enough time in the movie for them to address all of this with the attention that it deserved, really. Like, they did, they had the arc with Gordon Bombay getting lost in and finding himself and coming back to coach, but they have very, relatively very minor plots for the things like, you know, Adam Banks and get, getting noticed by the scouts or even, like, the other things about Luis Mendoza stopping or Julie getting playing time. Like, relatively they just don't do enough justice to those subplot elements there really aren't very strong subplots in comparison especially compared to like the first movie where you do have this big subplot of gordon and being a father figure to charlie there really isn't that kind of through like subplot that's through the entire movie that is as fleshed out I would argue that Gordon's storyline and his story of redemption is still your A story, but any of the subplots, they don't feel like a B story. They feel like C or D to your point because they're not spending enough time with them. I think that as I've watched this movie more and more as an adult, I think that this is very similar to the first film. It's a movie that's geared towards kids, but I think at the root of it, it's an adult film. Yeah, it's still about Gordon's story, for sure. Um, 
what I realized watching this through more carefully uh, pertaining to Banks is that he's really only out for one game. And I know the larger part of the story is that he was hiding his injury uh, because he did want to impress the scouts and mm. his dad in turn, his dad who's not there watching. Porcelain Banks. <laughs> yeah. You really have ruined this character for me with porcelain banks um but i never realized from the time that gordon discovers this injury it's after he's no longer captain blood it's after he has burned his uh his hendrix cardboard and he's like i should have spotted this and you're right you should have Mm. but adam has also done a very good job of hiding it and he's like i'm gonna have to bench you and they go get the x-rays so they play one game without Adam so that they can introduce Russ, which great. I love Keenan. He needed to be a part of this. Okay, fine. And, and, you know, Charlie's, he's got that eagle eye because you know how he's always been telling Gordon that he'd make a better coach than a player. Yeah. Always. All those times you mentioned it during the all first one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, um, I, I had real beef with this. We'll come into the end about Charlie being like, I'm going to step out. Was he the right person to make that call? Like I'm sure is he a better player than Averman? I don't anyway. know. I don't know. I, I think Averman scores one goal in the first two he films. Does. He scores he scores in the game against Iceland. I think that's the only goal you ever see Averman score. He loses every face-off that he takes. Yeah. But but every face-off he has to take. The second movie, the third movie, he takes all the face-offs. He has not won one. <laughs> I think that's also because when they put him in a face, he's always mouthing off to the other team, right? Because he's Aaron. He's the jokester. He's always going to put them down. Like, not in a way that Jesse does, where he's, like, really trying to do a put down. But, you know, he's trying to go for the mental aspect of it because he is that joking guy. But anyway, yeah. Well, it's worked out so well for Averman to psych out the other teams. (laughs) (laughs) Especially when it comes down to Gunnar Stahl. Um, but yeah, they make to, to the point about, um, rushing through things. Banks is only out for one game. And then we have such a big moment when he comes back and we just needed to do a little bit more with this. And instead we are focused on Gordon being like, okay, I'm back and I'm, I'm really going to pay attention now as a coach because now they do what he should have been doing this whole time, to your point, Andy. They start studying the tapes of Iceland. And Jan is working with individual players. He's trying to get Luis to stop. God, that must have been so annoying, setting up all those cans. There's For not the PA who did that. Like, but like, there's not enough time to do this in, in you know this universe, in that they're playing the Goodwill games over, what, like a two-week period? But at like one or two practices they're going to suddenly tighten everything up. Right. Exactly. And that's where I was like, from the time from the game that Gordon comes back to the time they play Iceland banks was only benched for one day. And I never realized that as a kid, but I was like, "Mm, we needed a little bit more time for him to make his comeback. But for sure. But like I'm being very nitpicky about this, especially that it's like a family movie. No, do it. That's why we're here. (laughs) But like as a kid, I'm like, that's fine. It's perfectly fine. Like, just give me this narrative. Give me this arc. I don't care about the time between these things. It's fine. Like, as a kid, you especially, you're not, you're not being that critical. 
Right, because until we sat down to watch this again, because I hadn't watched it in quite some time, I, I remember that Adam's injured after he gets slashed against Iceland, and that's why Russ comes in. I At that point, I forgot that he was not out for the rest of this tournament. I'm thinking, like, Adam mm. has missed, like, almost the whole... No, because I remember yeah. when he when he turned with his wrist. So but dramatic. I'm thinking, like, so he's dramatic. missed almost the whole thing. Right? But he ha- you're right, he misses one game. One game. If I have any problem with this film at all, it's... It's like the common thread that we keep coming back to. The timeline from the start of the film to the end of the film makes absolutely zero sense. The timing of everything that happens. The movie's well-paced, but the timing doesn't make sense. Maybe there's a multiverse situation going on that we're just not clued into. It could be. But we live in the multiverse where you have a beach ball brawl. <laughs> where Iceland shows up because it's their turn to get on the ice and Stanson just crushes Gordon's beach ball because fun be damned we're Iceland. I mean that's just the like just shows him being the perfect villain for a kids movie. I mean it is very symbolic though, right? Because the whole time in the first one, Gordon had to learn that hockey's supposed to be fun, and then that's what he's imparting on these kids. Which and Sean then, hates. <laughs> in the second one, he lost sight of that, and now that he's just gotten it back, Stanson just crushes the fun. Well, here's the thing, because at this point, you've already taught them the game. Now you can have some fun, but there's no fun in losing. We know this. That's why they're here. They, they've earned the right to be here. What I don't understand is how any official from the Goodwill Games did not get involved the minute that Stanson slashes Gordon in the knee to re-injure his knee and put him back with the cane. But were they even there? They're supposed to be. You're well, supposed yeah, to have people there. Technically, it was a practice. And then, yeah, the uh, USA's ice time was over and then Iceland was going to take it over. Yeah, last time I watched this, I was like, somebody arrest him. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But we get through that, and you get to the game where they're playing Iceland, and again, they're playing tighter, yet they're still getting their doors blown off. And we're going into the third period. This is is what you've been waiting for. This... Oh, oh wait, no, 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 no. Oh, you you're, you're jumping ahead. We we need to talk about the second period. And I think this also plays back to the practice because they've done well. They're, they're going to the final against Iceland. And I think Gordon knows that no matter what he's done up to this point, it's still a very long shot to beat them. And that's why he does revert back to hockey supposed to be fun because he doesn't want these kids to have their souls crushed. Um. And I love how the team embraces that in the second period, because as unrealistic as it is, the showmanship is just incredible. The Bash brothers are unhinged. They they acquire a third one in Ken Wu, which is completely unrealistic. But I love the bond of brothers there regardless. I like that you're just saying this is the unrealistic part. (laughs) (laughs) Um. The only thing that I bump on a little bit with this scene is what they try to do with Connie's character. She has always been the cheerleader. They haven't done enough with her holding down being the only female on the team in the first one 
technically she is the only woman on the ice because he's not playing Julie and it is a different position than obviously the goalie. So I would have liked to see them do more with Connie here instead of leaning into Coach McKay being the fill-in for a hot minute. Because now all of a sudden Coach McKay is like behind the bench instead of just spectating with Jan. But I digress. Um, (laughs) In the second period, that's when she knocks down the Iceland players. And, you know, I'm no lady, I'm a duck. Huh. Why are you a duck now when they've been enforcing this USA thing the entire time? They could have just held it for the third period once she's back in her duck's jersey. It was just so jarring to hear the words coming out of her mouth when in two seconds they are going to switch the jerseys. And it just doesn't, it does the character a disservice. It would have meant more if she was back in uniform. And we're going to gloss over the, go ahead, go ahead. Well, they needed a reason for Tex over there to use his lasso on the ice. And I'm so that was about um, okay. So I was about to say, and we're going to ignore the fact that there's a lasso on the bench at all times and a sixth player on the ice. Yeah, there's so many. There are so many things wrong here. There are so many things wrong. Two minutes for roping. Too many men on the ice. Everything is wrong. It's hysterical, but everything is wrong from a rules perspective. And where's Gee? Gee is her man. Why is Dwayne mm. stepping in here? Fair point. I mean, yeah, really, they need to develop that love triangle more. That's not even in the movie. Jermaine just needs to man up. He he wouldn't kiss her. Like like you need to step up to the plate here. He needs to wear one less scarf. And just be concerned with her. That scarf he's wearing when we see him, it's it's hideous. I no, that's that's no, the nineties. They have all of the hats. I love everything about it. Nobody wears a scarf in the summertime in Minnesota. It's it's, it's a look. It's in LA that he wears it. No, it's in Minnesota. No, no. Yeah, in the beginning when they're over that waterfall or whatever it was where he's about to kiss a, her. A waterfall slash levee. <laughs> <There they're at. laughs> Ber- I mean, it's 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 very romantic. Yeah, it's wonderful. That's nobody does wear the scarf again. I think um, I, in the practice because they're like, oh, why aren't we wearing our jerseys? And he he is in the scarf in the practice. Well, anyway, we get to the intermission between the second and third periods now, right? And this is where the Ducks come back. They are no longer Team USA. They're now the USA Ducks. In what is the most brilliant introduction and the most brilliant Mm -hmm. unveiling of a sports uniform in history? Because now we're about an hour and a half into what is, at this point, just product placement for the new NHL team that's coming to the point where they they had to because the jerseys were licensed to the NHL. If you look close enough, the jerseys that they're wearing at the Junior Goodwill Games have the NHL logo patched onto the back of the jerseys. Wow. Only you would have caught that. It's to the right of the CCM logo because all of the jerseys used to have the little NHL shield. All of the jerseys that they're wearing at the Goodwill Games has the NHL shield on them. Every so the jerseys are made by CCM and not Hendrix. Oh, that's the other thing. 
They don't oh, even cover it up oh, no. because they can't. They don't even cover it up because they can't. I, I, I don't know if this is something to talk about later, but I really want to understand what the real world timeline was with the actual NHL Ducks team related to the movies. Like the first movie came out in 92. The second movie came out in 94. Where is the actual NHL team in all of this? I believe the NHL team came out, I think, the same year that this movie did, but I think the movie was released before the inaugural season because the Arrowhead Pond in Anaheim had just been built. Mm. It was a brand. Now it's called the Honda Center, but it used to be called Arrowhead Pond. And so mm. that's that was a brand new facility. Disney paid a, a couple of hundred million dollars to get that expansion team. Um, Michael Eisner wanted them involved in professional sports so bad that Disney, Disney fronted the money for them. So it was right before the team. This is how they unveiled the jerseys for the team. This is how they unveiled oh, the logo wow. for the team. We were going to go when we went to Disneyland. We tried to get tickets to a hockey game, and instead we ended up seeing a Kings game when we were in LA. They it, played the Ducks, Well, though. they did play the Ducks, but um, that was how the timing worked out. We couldn't see them at their home stadium, even though we were in LA and then later Anaheim. It was the only way that we could see them. So in the two years between 92 and 94, Disney just got an NHL team and got the facility in that short span of time? Well, the arena was being built because the city of Anaheim built the arena because they were trying to get a basketball team. They wanted the NBA mm -hmm. in Anaheim. They couldn't get it. So Disney came up with the money to get the NHL. Came up with the money. I was just going to say, <laughs> this is when they had cash. This was coming right off of Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. And the first <laughs> Mighty Ducks film. That's well, the other thing. You've already, got, you, Ducks, yeah. you've already got a brand recognition. You already have a name. Like, yeah. they were just ready to go. Yeah. 92, they they didn't have all of those under their belt, but certainly by 94. You didn't have Lion like, King so, yet. Like, was the Mighty Ducks' first movie that big that they, it warranted a team? Like, that I Disney mean, was like, we're going all in on this? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a cultural phenomenon. Think about it. You got two sequels plus an animated series and an NHL team and now a television series, albeit a bad television series on Disney+. Plus. Like, yeah, like it, it was that big. I think people forget now kids, kids nowadays don't understand how big the Mighty Ducks were when this when this first film came out, when the second film came out. People mm. forget how big of a deal this was. I was actually going to say I, that this is such a good time capsule film. Uh, like if you're going to show somebody what the 90s was between the wardrobe <laughs> the the schoolyard puck scene and this last game here, I really do think this this kind of hit on the zeitgeist of what the 90s was. Well, what I was interested in is I remember back in the day when I first saw the movies, I was absolutely all in. Like, as I mentioned before, like I got the jerseys. I, I was that was my team and I was all in on it. But now with the, with the perspective now and hindsight, I'm like so curious. I don't remember really how big the first movie was for Disney to put that much of a bet on getting their own NHL team. Like it, it just feels like a very short span of time for them to commit to that given this first movie. Right. Yeah. 
Well, they did. They they put all of their eggs in that basket, and for a short time, it was very successful for them. And and when Disney was in over their heads and they could no longer run the team because they didn't know how to, they sold the team, and the next year, they won the Stanley Cup. <laughs> The year after they sold them. But this is nothing new, though, right? For Disney to to put a lot of money on something that has the potential to be... Like, look at Avatar and and the emphasis that they put on that when there was one movie. We... That, that was like 11 years ago. We're only getting the second film now and we have an entire land built in Animal Kingdom. That Disney well, likes rolling the dice on stuff sometimes. They I mean, do. Av- Avatar was very financially successful, obviously, but at the same time, like it doesn't really have that cultural impact. I cannot name a single quote, quotable thing from that movie. I, I and I don't even remember the character names, frankly. Uh, but and I've only seen it once. I really wasn't compelled to go back to it. But I, I digress. Are we comparing Avatar to the Mighty Ducks? Like we're really doing that? We no. sure are. <laughs> <laughs> We shouldn't, though. We shouldn't, how, though. How much more quotable is the Mighty Ducks than Avatar? Oh, oh, it's yeah. a lot more. I think mm-hmm. it's a lot more. But anyway, let's let's move on and talk <laughs> about the third period here. Now is the rebranded Ducks and everybody's quacking and we're all USA Ducks. Um, I love that. And I think it has to do with going back to the Ducks roots. They don't necessarily... They're going for the trick shots, right? Like, they know that if they have any chance at winning, that's what it has to be. So they just pull out all the stops. They let Ken Wu uh, finally pull off his figure skater move and get the goal. Luis gets his chance to stop. And what I really love is how they've been building this moment for Russ because Iceland specifically has been gunning for him the entire time. I love the goalie switcheroo. I thought this was brilliant. You'd never see this in real life, but it's such a great moment for the film. Yeah. I mean, it's not a legal move, but whatever. It's, yeah, you have to announce that you've changed the position of the player. And are we also going to ignore the fact that Russ, in a matter of seconds, got all of those pads on, they switched the jerseys, in plain sight of every single person in that arena, do you have any idea how long it takes to put those pads on? It's like a 10 or 15 minute process to get those goalie pads on, and they do it in about 15 seconds on the bench and nobody noticed it. They honestly should have done it in the locker room during that, I'm Julie Gaffney from Bangor, Maine, you know, when, <laughs> when they're all standing up. Which, by the way, we glossed over. Cheesy, yes, but I feel like all of these big speech moments, you kind of gloss over. Like, I'll forgive that one. There are more in this film than there are in the first one. But I- I'm not going to hate on Ducks Fly together. No, I but you, do know, it. you know what I want to do, though? I want to I do some video editing. And I want to take that scene. And I want Gordon. I want to get a, a moment where Gordon is, where are you from? Where are you from? Where are you from? Who are you? Who are you? And give him, like, a beat and just have... Mike Arruzzioni. (laughs) (laughs) I play for the United States of America. And then they come out in Ducks jerseys. Please do that for social media. That would be hysterical. This whole thing. But I as as far fetched as it is, you're never going to change. And they call it out. They go, well, there's not a there's not a rule against jersey changes. Yes, there is. You you cannot just change your uniforms. There is absolutely a rule against it. 
it's not NHL rules. It's Junior Goodwill Games rules. I guess. Exactly. No, and I, I like that they call it out, though, because I'm sure they knew that every hockey fan like yourself is going to go like, you can't do that. So I like that they drew attention to it. But really, I mean, this entire third period, right? Woo, 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 Kenny woo. <laughs> the, the announcers are on point, and this is all about character moments and not the goals that they are scoring because the – the commentators are talking more about the characters than they are about the actual game. So, you know, you have everybody have their, their literal redemption shot. And somehow Gunnar Stahl has been the only one who has scored five goals for Iceland. He is the only player on Iceland well, at he, this point. He is the leading it. goal scorer in the tournament. They go in ahead and they tell <sighs> us that later. They do. They sure do. My, my favorite part here though is how the entire stadium is on the Ducks' side. Like, they have the chant of, we will quack you, which throws back to the first movie. And I don't know if this is kosher for an international competition, for the stadium itself to have signage that is so pro one team. It would be like if the Olympics in, like, like Placid or wherever, we're just like, go Team USA. Yeah, I don't think that just because it's home ice, you can have such a blatant display of the patriotism, but I will buy the notion that every fan in there is is yeah. a Ducks fan. Like, if it's the Olympics, you're going to have people traveling from Iceland to support the team. But for this, especially like what we were talking about before, how hockey was such a thing in the 90s, I will buy that everyone got so invested when they went on their winning streak and, you know, it was like the hottest ticket you could get. Yeah, I mean, we're also not going to gloss over the fact that not one parent could go from Minnesota to Los Angeles, <laughs> so I'm not going to assume that people went from Iceland to Los Angeles either. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're right. They would not be a blatant favoritism in the arena. But at the same time, the, the the mighty ducks of Anaheim are here. We're a we're a new team. We have to show you all of our state of the art oh, yeah. LED light bulbs in the arena and show you everything in the Arrowhead Pond. Like the whole thing is just season tickets, season tickets, season tickets. <laughs> it's brilliant, I, though. It's absolutely I mean, it, brilliant, and it it works. Like it, you know, inspired a generation of ducks fans. Like. I didn't, as like a seven or eight year old or whatever, I didn't have a team that was my team, but suddenly, okay, Ducks, you're my team now. And like, they did it. Good, good for you. Right. No, same, same. Before, I'm sorry, before we move on, I have to point out one of my favorite lines in, in Russ's uh, knuckle puck shot. <laughs> The goalie. <laughs> this, guy, this guy does not talk above a whisper this entire film. And it's just so over the top and so exaggerated. And oh, it's awful, but it works. And the fact that he could score because the goalie is not supposed to, unless they're going to the bench, they're not supposed to cross over the red line or take off their helmet. I'm sure. No, the minute the helmet comes out, the helmet comes off, the whistle gets blown. But it's not really the goalie. That's the thing. Yeah, you've pulled him. He's not really the goalie, so you get away with it, I guess. The thing is, at this point in the game, the net has come off the moorings. They don't blow a whistle. They have just said, "Rules be damned." We're just gonna play. So it's fine. you know what I'm saying? Like at this point, you you like I want to overanalyze it, but I kind of can't because this is where like it frustrates me. But I will suspend reality to to just enjoy being entertained by a film. 
Well, but you really do get upset by the fact that once they've tied it up, they don't play overtime. There's they go straight for the shootout. St- which does not happen. Nobody goes to a shootout in a championship game. You would go to overtime. But again, not the NHL. Yeah. but it's, he, it's it's Junior Goodwill Games rules, obviously. Yeah, clearly. So we go with no overtime straight to a shootout. And something that only dawned on me last night as we were watching this. It's all but one player on the Ducks. It's all but one player on the Ducks. Clearly, they used the same stunt double for yes. all of the shooters because I think it's everybody but Banks, I think. Every single one of them is left-handed. And then the, I think the same thing <laughs> happens with Iceland. Every shooter is left-handed. You have one right-handed shot. Two, actually, when you have Gunnar Stahl... Because, you know, he stops his forward momentum <laughs> in the shootout, which I don't care whether it's the Junior Goodwill Games, the Olympics, the NHL, or street hockey. The minute you stop forward momentum in the shootout, the play is ruled dead. And that is a universal rule. And Fulton does it, and Gunner does it, and, and they all do it. They all stop forward momentum to take these slap shots. But every all but one shooter is left-handed. And I didn't dawn on me until last night. Way I, to ruin it, Sean. <laughs> I really didn't pick up on that. What I what I did pick up on, I kind of wish that they let the Ducks take all of the shots. And for the most part, they do. Because it's Jesse, it's Gee, uh, it's Fulton, then it's Dwayne, and then it's Banks. Right. Uh, so I kind of wish that they had given it to one of the OGs. And and maybe like that would have been Connie's shot. That would have been better to have her take one of the one of the shootout goals instead of having uh, Robertson do it. Yeah, Robertson, well, they, who's just a good puck handler because he can hot dog with the puck, but he doesn't literally do anything else. And he's the one who misses because he's too fancy. And that's been his whole thing. And they never really call it out is that. Like they sort of do it in the first game where he's so focused on, you know, juggling the puck. He never passes it to Fulton and and they lose. I think I think that's in the Iceland game the first time they play. Iceland. Yes. But he's also the one who misses the shootout goal. I'm surprised they didn't really, you know, they'll send him in with his lasso, but nobody's going to call him for being a puck hog. I got nothing. No, it's fine. let's talk about the final moment though when um gaffney julie gets her chance to show everybody why she left bangor maine and gordon pulls goldberg now he's gonna pull goldberg to put julie in and he tells her watch out for the triple deke because they're gonna steal my move and it's gunner stall again something that even as a kid i never understood 17,000 people are at the Arrowhead Pond. And it's not until she drops the puck out of her glove that nobody in that building realizes that that goal wasn't scored. Nobody realizes she made that save until she shows them that she did. Just leave it alone. It's for the drama. I would have bought it if it was a stick save and, you know, she caught it like in her pads or something. And you didn't see that it didn't go all the way through. But yeah, this is where from the third period on hockey takes the backseat to filmmaking, but it wouldn't have been as effective 
if it was a stick save. You have to give her this moment. Otherwise, what have you done with this entire character? They squandered their chance with Connie. They needed to give it to Julie. They did. I'm not saying that she shouldn't have the moment. I'm just saying it's ridiculous. Yeah, that that many people didn't see it. That nobody yeah. saw it because it's a dead silence. Like Gunner himself didn't even see her? Nobody realized that. As an eight-year-old, that's what I'm saying. Like As an eight-year-old, if you recognize how ridiculous that is, it, it is a fail. I think it's a fail. Right. I mean, if you're an eight-year-old who is not watching hockey and this is your first exposure to hockey... Like I'm sure it was for many people. It's fine. I will admit, because you and I are on the same page with this, Andy, that this yeah. is the formative film that got us into it. And um, I didn't realize that the flying V was not standard practice. Yeah, same. <laughs> I was like, when I first started seeing hockey games, I was like, why don't they do that? Like, it just makes so much sense to pass it back and forth. Mm-hmm. Well, Iceland showed us in the second film why they don't yeah. do it, because <laughs> they just get barreled over. I said it last week, stack five on the blue line and the flying V doesn't work. And they show you here that that's the exact mm-hmm. thing that you do. And the flying V doesn't work. And symbolically, Iceland just mm. rips the flying V apart. But yeah, that, that is what a noob I was watching this film. But Team USA wins, and you lost it for yourself. Let's go shake their hands. Which I'm, I must say one of those two lines, at least weekly. It, yeah. Those are the ones that stuck with me. And then everybody, including the kids who are not originally from Minnesota, and even Tibbles goes back for the campfire. So I don't know how they're going to get home from there. And again, no parents or chaperones in, well, I guess the, the coach or whatever. But yeah, no parents. Just, hey, we're, we're done. We won. Let's all go have a campfire in Minnesota somewhere. And they also never really, you know, they bring Tibbles with them, but they never dive into the fact that the Hendrix sponsorship is like out the window at this point because it's not on the, the new Ducks jerseys. And there's no like conflict there either of like... Tibbles being in the stands, being like, those aren't our jerseys. Yeah. No, it's just He's him just him and Jan nail-biting it through the entire thing. But I kind of like that that bond that formed with them a little bit. And and I guess that's it. They didn't give uh, Tibbles a big enough moment where he's like, damn the sponsorship and damn my job. Like, I want to root for this bunch of kids now. Something else that didn't dawn on me until last night admittedly after happy hour while we were watching this film at the end of the movie for all of the years that I've been watching this film for all the years that we've all been watching the mighty ducks the mighty ducks the mighty ducks when they show the flying v at the end of the movie it's canadian <laughs> geese <laughs> they don't even show ducks they show canadian geese <laughs> I don't know why I never realized it until last night. I've seen this movie 500 times and I'm looking at it last night and I go, wait a minute. Those aren't even ducks. Because what if ducks don't fly together? What if they only swim together? I don't know. But you're telling me of all of the of all the cinematography, of all the stock footage you have of wildlife, you don't have one video of the ducks doing the flying V. You went with Canadian geese. 
I mean, they are doing this to really just taunt Canada, who gets no representation in this film. <laughs> in the hockey film, correct. What I never noticed either, just because I love this bonding moment with We Are the Champions so much, and we are going to talk about character in a second here. Um, they have Averman singing, and it never bothered me as a kid, but my God, he is so off-key. Yeah. And you have... Dean Portman, who can actually sing because he was in Newsies, later goes on to marry the queen, Idina Menzel herself. Mind-blowing, right? <laughs> Andy's, Andy's looking surprised. I, I yeah, learned something new today. Yeah, no. I, I, it like blew my mind when I realized that Idina married Dean Portman. Um, but they met. It was actually really cute. They met uh, on the set of the Rent film. Because they brought oh. the original cast back, and then he was brought in as an extra. And because he's done musicals from Newsies, he got to be in rent. Anyway, and they, they reconnected. It's a great story. Um, yeah, why didn't you just have him sing it? Yeah, because he's supposed to be the tough guy. He's not supposed to have a beautiful singing right, voice. Right, I guess. And Averman's, you know, that guy that, of course, but he's going to rabble-rouse the singing. But Averman is the stand-in for the kid in the audience who wants to be part of this, you know? Uh, so it's fine. Like, if, if if Averman could sing, then it might ruin it a little bit. Yeah. It's true. All right. Let's start breaking down the cast a little bit here. Uh, we're going to introduce the new characters uh, because we did talk about the original cast last week. Let's start with Karsten Norgard, Wolf the Dentist Stanson. What an outstanding villain he was in this film. He's he's hands down one of the greatest Disney <clears throat> villains of all time. Like, do they build him up to be over the top? Yes. The name the dentist alone is utterly ridiculous, but it works so well. I I love him. Love to hate him. I, and I, I love what a caricature they made of him. No, it, it was perfect. But also his name is Wolf the Dentist. Like you have a nickname in there already, but all right, let's call him the dentist. Catherine Urbe plays Michelle McKay. I wish that we would have seen her get fleshed out a little bit more because, like, Casey was the love interest in the first film for Gordon, and then Gordon goes on an ice cream date with Maria in this film, but it doesn't really mean anything. And McKay is just there, and she's the one, she's the advocate for the kids, right? But, like, I feel like we never really get her fleshed out all of the way. Yeah, like how did she land here? Like we know she's a teacher, but how did she get this job? Does she know anything about hockey? I mean, they sort of play with that idea a little bit because I do love her moment, her change it up moment where Charlie's like, say it louder, you know, and she knows what she wants them to do. She just can't articulate it. I, I think that's such a great moment for her, but like it's not necessarily an earned moment i think they could have built to it a little bit more but the actress is great yeah michael tucker plays don tibbles who is the comic relief but he's also doing a good job of when he has to be being that corporate sponsor i expect more he's a little greasy he's a little slimy but never to the point where he's ever dislikable i thought that he towed the line very well yeah, hundred percent. Like he, it just it worked for him and for the role. Yeah, I totally bought into the sleazy thing, but I never realized how much of a joke they make out of him anytime they try to put him on skates because he falls. He gets hit with the puck, 
when he brings uh, McKay in. And then uh, when once Jan comes in, he puts him in skates and then he flips over into the uh, into the stance. I never realized what a butt of the joke they made him. Yeah. Jan, but, but he still gets his seat at the campfire. Yeah. Jan Rubich plays Jan. Um, and we said it before. Jan is soft-spoken and he's tough on Gordon when he needs to be. But I thought that he was a... I thought he was a very acceptable fill-in for Hans. I do too. I I love this character. Yeah, they. I mean, they. We talked earlier. They could have recast Hans and then brought him Emin or whatever. But yeah, it, it worked. All right. Uh, Columbe Jacobson plays Julie the cat Gaffney. I always think this is Julia Stiles. I don't know why, because they look so much alike that they I keep do. thinking this is like Julia Stiles as a child actress. That's like this was one of her first big roles. But I love the character. I thought she did a good job with it. And I'm glad that she was the one at the end of the game that sealed it for Team USA. I agree, as, especially as a little girl watching this. I gravitated more towards Julie than I ever did Connie. Aaron Lore plays Dean Portman. You said it before, Mr. Idina Menzel. So it's just so funny to see, knowing the musical background that he has, that he plays this goon character and he plays it so well. And he skates so well. I mean, he's an incredible dancer. Like, go back and watch Newsies. Your eyes gravitate him in, to him in every single scene. Even knowing that he was Dean Portman watching that and going, oh my God, I can't believe this kid can dance so well. He really does steal every scene that he's in in Newsies. And to see him do the polar opposite here of being like this tough guy that's a teenager with a tattoo. Um, ridiculous, yes, but it works for the character. And to see him just like fully embrace being the Bash brother. Um, I just love this character so much. Th- he really is what made me fall in love with this movie. I thought he was cute when I was a kid uh but I just loved like the whole bad boy thing and you know even like the dance scene as cheesy as it is he's really getting into it when they're dancing on the skates but he's just so good it's so impressive that he can skate as well as he dances well he he actually does sing now that I think about it um when he first gets introduced and Gordon's like that kid's a teenager yeah he has like he has his headphones on with his Discman or Walkman or whatever. He's holding his uh, hockey stick like a guitar and making that, and he's singing some song. So he, he does sing in the movie. He does. Wow. He Yeah, he has made a musical out of every film he's been in. I'm wondering if that's even a real song or if they just let him, let him go with it. I have no idea. Mm. I don't think it's a real song. Ty O'Neill plays Dwayne Robertson. He's funny. That's the thing, right? Like, it's comic relief. Like, not not every character is going to, like, be a still waters run deep or have this huge, you know, arc at the end. But I always liked Dwayne. He was a little cheesy, but he was supposed to be. Really, he's there to represent the South, right? Because yeah. you're, you have Luis Mendoza represents Miami, and you're representing the Latin American population. Julie is coming from Bangor, Maine. You're just pulling kids from different areas of the country so that basically so that it's all of Team USA. It's not just Team Michigan. It's not just the District 5 Ducks, right? Right. So this is what's supposed to like bond everybody together and make it Team USA. Everybody gets represented. That's really why he's there. But I thought that he was fine, and I thought Ty O'Neill did a good enough job. He was funny when he had to be funny, and I thought that it worked. I think this is one of those characters, like, 
they made him so cheesy. He has no business working in this film. To your point, like I'll buy the thing where they wanted to rep- represent the South. Uh, but I think the actor just makes him so likable. He gets a pass on the cheese factor. Yeah, it's fine. I, I mean, like it was like as a kid being that target demographic, it was hilarious. It was great. It was perfect for me. And you got to give him props, too, because he really did do the puck handling. Yeah, he was very good. There, he was. I mean, he was very skilled. I, I Because he comes in with a lasso later on, I think that kind of negates what he is able to do with the puck. Because that's the thing that you remember is the yeehaw. Yeah. And not that he can actually really juggle a puck really well. Justin Wong plays Ken Wu. The woo, woo, woo. The figure skating Olympian that is now a hockey player. Um, I love Ken Wu. What is there not to like about Ken Wu? He's a scene stealer. Yeah, no comment for me. He's perfect. Mike Vitar plays Luis Mendoza. To me, he will always be Benny the Jet Rodriguez. But I wish that they would have given him a little bit more than just being the kid that crashes into the board and crashes into soda cans. Even just a couple more lines in there like it in the classroom setting like you you could have done a little bit more with him because that's squandering the actor who has you know just as much notoriety at this point as as any anyone else does right yeah i guess like in in, i mean in hindsight at the time who else from the movies except for the actors who were in the first one had done much or had much of a resume at that point right and i mean and this is only a couple of years after the Sandlot came out, so he was recognizable. I mean, I frankly, in terms of the child actors, he was probably the most accomplished one up to this point in time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I recognize. I wasn't big into the stan- the Sandlot. I had seen it, but like I knew who he was certainly by the time he got to D two. Yeah. And then Keenan Thompson is Russ Tyler. I mean, Keenan Thompson is an American staple at this point. He's a staple of our childhood. He continues to be a staple. And to see that this was the start of something special for him, I love that he was in this film. I wish we would have seen more of him as the series went on. But, I mean, at this, by the time you get to the third movie, which I think we are talking about next week, we are. it's... It's basically cast be damned. They just grab a couple of them and that's the end of it. But I wish we would have seen more of him. I love Russ Tyler. He's comic relief. He's heart. He's soul. He's everything about Team USA for two games. No, and I I love that that's how they introduce this character is that he calls them on it, is that Team USA is being represented by a bunch of whining babies and he recognizes what a great opportunity they have. And, you know, I love that he teaches them that lesson and then later gets to help them pull out the win. But, I mean, I love Keenan in every single thing that he does, and this is no no exception. Uh, I love that he got to be a part of a movie that means so much to me after growing up with him on all that and then later SNL. I just, I, Keenan can do no wrong in my book ever. Yeah, and he, like, he steals every scene that he yeah. is in. He is so charismatic, like... Just, you know, it's kind of hard in hindsight, but just watching it, like, you see how good he is and how, like, his trajectory seems very clear. Even because they sort of start him off as a bully, right? Because he's talking smack. He never goes too overboard where you're like, wow, that's a really mean kid. And I don't think that's because I love Keenan as a persona and I'm seeing him through that. I think it's just because he knew how to balance that out of taunting the ducks without being too mean 
Final thoughts on D2, the Mighty Ducks. We'll let our guest go first. I'm just, uh, in hindsight and everything, well, at the time when I first saw this movie, it was like my favorite movie. It really got me into the Mighty Ducks and into hockey. And um, with hindsight now, seeing it uh, 30 years later, oh gosh, no, that's not right, is it? The, the first, first one, one we <laughs> we reviewed it last week because it was yeah. the 30th anniversary and Disney is not making nearly enough of a big deal. All they did was release the second season in conjunction with mm. the 30th. But like, I want to see more merch. I want the jerseys back in store. Yeah. So I guess like 28 years later, it's just still wonderful. Um, it's I, I keep talking about this, but I'm just so like impressed with the tie-in in the real world of get of like using this as a vehicle to promote their hockey team because it worked and it like it was a big gamble and it was a good thankfully thankfully it was a good movie and that worked to promote the hockey team because if if d2 the sequel to the first movie wasn't good how would that have affected the franchise yeah i think that this movie i still love it um, I said it last week in regards to the first film. Mm. They bend the rules of hockey a little too much, but they're doing it to make a film, so you kind of take the good with the bad. It's also a family film, and it's a comedy, so naturally <clears throat> you kind of do give it a little bit of forgiveness for that. Um, some of the writing, I think they did write themselves into a hole a little bit, but ultimately I think the movie still holds up. I'm glad we got a sequel. I think we deserved a sequel. Um, it is product placement, but it's only product placement because you recognize it as an adult. As a kid, it just seemed like the second movie. Um, and it does, it, it is pretty seamless in its in its movement from one to the next. I think the timeline is a little janky, but it does feel like a natural sequel to the second film, or, or to the first film, I should say. So I'm glad that we got it. I think that it is, of the three, I think it is the best film. Um, and uh, I, I do think that it's a film that you can sit as a family, and I think everybody can appreciate it. I think everybody can enjoy it. Uh, yeah, I certainly agree with uh, what both of you said. Um, I think as far as the timeline, because we were very critical of that, I think we just needed more clarity with... You know, well, not even clarity because we it is defined as a year since the first one, but I think that that's really uh, the the biggest change that they could have made was just give us a little bit more breathing room, make it two or three years that they you know put the band back together. Uh, but other than the continuity with the first one and certain things being a little cheesy, a little tropey. I think that this film asks us to forgive more than the first one does. Some of the things that we're willing that, that we have to suspend our disbelief for. But um, despite that, I, I don't care. I love it now. Like I did then. And I would go so far as to say that this is one of the best sequels of all time because it works as a standalone. The things that they did to cover their tracks in the first one, you don't need to know what happened in the first one for all of those things to work now. And I would say that this is as good as Home Alone 2 as far as sequels that, you know, we love go. Um, you know, am I going to say it's like a Godfather sequel? I feel like, you know, don't come for me on that. Um, 
But as far as a movie where you can just watch it and enjoy it for what it is without backstory, it's perfection. And we want to know what you have to say about the Mighty Ducks. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Andy, thank you for joining us on Monoreal Radio today. Did you want to go out there and kind of just uh, promote your Twitter handle or let nah, people know? I got I got no plugs. I was just happy to be here and talk about the Mighty Ducks movies. All right. News of the week and a contest winner are coming up, but first a quick break. If you're thinking of booking a trip to a Disney destination, you have to contact Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. My husband and I recently celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary and wanted to go on a trip just the two of us. Jackie suggested Disneyland, knowing we'd never been and I had been dreaming of going. I am so thankful for her suggestion, as it was the most magical way to celebrate. Jackie got us a fantastic deal, but still constantly checked for discounts to make sure we were guaranteed the lowest price. Having recently visited Disneyland, she was a great source for helpful information and had suggestions for everything, including meals, Max Pass, even places to visit in Los Angeles on our non-park day. Upon arrival at our hotel, we experienced the easiest check-in because Jackie had taken care of everything. Throughout our trip, Jackie was in constant contact, making sure we had everything we needed and answering any questions we had. Our vacation was Perfect. All thanks to Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. So if you are interested in completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can visit MagicalVacationPlanner.com and request me as your travel planner, or you can email me directly at j.zalezi. That's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. Hi, this is Kelly from Carmen Kismet, your official monorail news sponsor, and I am very excited to throw it over to Sean and Jackie to talk all about the Disney news. But before I do that, I want to make sure that I share with you guys where you can check out all of my Disney inspired art at karma and kismet designs.com don't forget listeners of the show get a 10 percent discount with the code monorail 10 at checkout to see all of kelly's work including all of the amazing prints that she has for halloween it is online at uh karma and kismet designs.com that's karma the letter n kismet designs.com she's got a really cute print of the sanderson sisters that she just released yeah and we will have a review of hocus pocus 2 coming up in the next couple of weeks. So just keep an eye on the social media. Let's talk about the news this week. Chris Hemsworth has signed a first-look deal with National Geographic. He's got a show called Limitless with Chris Hemsworth coming to Disney Plus later this year. Can you explain exactly what a first-look deal is? Because you can articulate it better than I can. Basically, a first look deal is the modern day equivalent of a studio contract. So if there's a project that Chris Hemsworth wants to do, uh, basically he is signed with Nat Geo to pitch it to them first and they will develop it before they let him go to Discovery or something like that. So it, it's basically a no comp- It's a borderline no compete clause. They want to take care of their Thor. Okay, very good. Oh, I mean, look, I, I, I get it. You know, he's a global brand. I and I hate to I hate to say it like that because he's a human being, but he he really is a global brand at this point. But we know Disney has a history going back to the Walt era where where they had somebody that they fell in love with, whether it be a Bobby Driscoll or 
you know, in more modern times now, a Chris Hemsworth, that they just want to latch themselves onto them for as long as possible. Haley Mills, right back in the day, it's basically just continuing what they've always done with name talent. Right, and it's the right thing to do because, you know, they did name the Avengers Disney Legends. They did give them that status, and... As far as we know, you know, uh, Love and Thunder said at the end, Thor will be back. So if they know that they have a continued relationship with him playing Thor, they're going to want to keep him happy. And especially with all of these streaming services now, most notably Discovery, they don't want him going anywhere else. It would be stupid to lose him. Of course. Well, that is our news for this week, but we do have a contest winner. We pulled a winner uh, for the giveaway, including a Mickey Mouse Club lithograph, a straw charm from the Hidden Mickey Supply Co., and a monoreal radio t-shirt. Yes, Walt is very excited about that. That's why he keeps squeaking his ball. Yes, Walt is very excited. A ton of people entered. Thank you, everybody who did enter to win. Our winner for this contest is Long Lost Local on Instagram. So Long Lost Local, just send us your t-shirt size and your shipping address and we will get that package out to you as quickly as possible. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monorail Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. For the social media, that is Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monorail Radio. And for links to everything related to the show, it is online at monorailradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.